and welcome to The Back Page, a podcast about video games and sometimes some chatter about magazines. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined by Matthew Castle. Hello! How are you doing today, Matthew? You good? Uh, yes, I'm good. Looking forward to Christmas. Yes, which uh, in no way dates this episode at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe we should add in some more topical references. Wonder what will happen with the uh, with Brexit. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'll the t- end of Star Trek Discovery Season 3. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, I hear David Cronenberg's in this season. Anyway, he is, yeah, it's quite odd. Yeah, yeah. Right, he's, he's got a very interesting voice. Okay, so this episode, Matthew. Um, so when we started doing this, you and I are both fans of the podcast The Big Picture, a film podcast uh, on that you can listen to on The Ringer. And um, I think that's one of the reasons we started doing this uh, in terms of inspiration, because those are really good personality-led podcasts and the hosts have very specific tastes and all that stuff. But um, one of the things that really stands out about that podcast is they do something called a draft for each of the... uh, They've been doing it since 2010, I think. They've been doing the last 10 years. They started with 2010 and they're moving forwards. And basically they're picking the best films from each year Mm. And um, you and I thought we could do something similar with games, is that right? Yes, but maybe without the confusing sports analogy that they use. <laughs> yes, just I don't the... really know what a draft is. <laughs> yeah, That's the problem, is uh, me and Matthew don't understand sports, um, so we thought we'd settle for a simple top ten. And we thought we'd do that on all of the years where we worked in games media, although I didn't work in games media this year, so... Uh, Anyway, um, it's the year before. But we thought we'd do that because it would be a really good sort of potted history of, I think an era that people now consider retro um perhaps tenuously i don't know what retro is really counts as um these days but i feel like 10 years or more kind of is retro and uh yeah we, yeah Look, looking back over over the years to compile my list for this i was thinking wow actually some of these look and feel really old and the kind of things we were talking about really date these games yeah, so we're talking about the beginning of the HD era and like the end of the PS2 era. We're obviously on PS5. That's actually a long time ago. Uh, so um, also you see on Twitter a lot these days, you see name your favorite games from 2010, kind of like tweets to try and get people to, I don't know, divulge their credit card information or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of part of it as well. I, people seem to have nostalgia now for this era of gaming. And so we thought obviously our combined magazine experience It'll yield some good anecdotes about what was going on uh, in each of those years. Well, you will decide that at home if they're good or not. <laughs> Matthews definitely will be, but he he won't think they are. But they will be hilarious um, <laughs> inadvertently. Uh, so, Matthew, what were you doing in two thousand six? So, two thousand six was the end of my university years. Um, so that took me up to about May, and then began my search for work, which culminated in a job on Endgamer which I started in October. But between May and October, I basically did fuck all um, <laughs> because I'd applied to go to film school to do a screenwriting course and abs- and it really had kind of pinned my hopes on this. Failed to get in, failed to even get an interview. It was a complete absolute no, um, which was obviously pretty rough. So I, I pretty much stayed at home uh, eating. Uh, my family went away for the summer, so I basically just ate all the ice cream in our freezer while watching Smallville, which I was renting from uh, uh, Love Film. <laughs> so I, I was—I genuinely spent days where I maybe only ate ice cream, watching about five seasons of Smallville in three DVD chunks, and whenever the postman delivered them, uh, it was terrible. But 
uh, <laughs> within that time, I picked up the first issue of Endgamer, saw a job advert for a staff writer, a tiny little thing. It was in like a side news column on, on, on like the third page of news. It was a jaunty little picture of the editor, Mark Green, doing the old We Want You, like the old war poster. And um, yeah, it was just sort of 30 words saying, if you think you should be our staff writer, apply for this. And I did. And I didn't really apply for any other jobs because I just had no idea what I wanted to do. And after about three months... Got a uh, got an interview. No, two maybe two months. Got an interview, and then it was about two months before I heard anything. So it was a really long, drawn out summer. Um, and then yeah, I got it. The rest is history. Wow. So one of the things that I didn't know about you until we'd been friends for enough time that you invited me to your stag do <laughs> is that you went to Oxford University. Um, yeah. And you're very quiet about this. You're very reserved, and that's funny because. Everyone else who I've ever met who's been to Oxbridge will tell me in the first 30 seconds that they meet me. Uh, um, it, it's, I think it's specifically because of working at Future where it was basically social death, if, if you announced that or anyone knew. I say social death, people would have been fine, but it meant you'd get it absolutely ripped out of you by mainly Tim Weaver, uh, the editor of Xbox World 360. Because um, if you even mentioned it once, he'd make like it's all you ever talked about, you know. <laughs> and so I just lived in total fear of it. Like it was quite funny actually. There was almost like a secret support network of Oxbridge people, none of whom would ever admit to it. Like if anyone did admit to it, I, I'd think, oh man, you know, I, I don't like it myself when people talk about it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's more of a future thing rather than any kind of huge shame. Also, I just didn't really achieve much while I was there. You know, I wrote uh, uh, an extended essay on James Bond, as mentioned last week, <laughs> and uh, it didn't score very highly, and that was probably the highlight. Uh, maybe it's because you asserted that the wrong Bond was the best Bond, and whoever was marking it was like, well, this is bullshit. Um... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know if that factored into it, but... <laughs> Yeah, it was it was kind of weird because of because of that being at the tail end of university and like at Oxford all the exams come right there's no like coursework it's all piled up right right in the last it's basically a week decides what you, how you've done after those three years mm. um, it's probably the same in lots of places I'm not saying it's special uh, but um, because of that like gaming time was quite limited although the 360 had come out. Um, you know, just at the end of 2005. That's right, yeah. And uh, one of my friends foolishly bought one, which was obviously amazing because I, I had nowhere near enough cash to, to get one or, or you know. And uh, he bought one just as we were having to do, like, all this intense revision. And we became semi-addicted to Call of Duty 2 split-screen multiplayer. That game worked. Um, oh, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. But at the same time... You know, we would be playing it and people would be sticking their head in the door and like, you know, and saying like, you, you know, you you do realise you two are going to fail <laughs> because all you're doing is playing Call of Duty 2. And uh, other people who were also lazy were basically using us to kind of feel better about themselves. Right. So they just stick their head around and be like, phew, you know, these two <laughs> assholes are still playing this game. I'm OK. I've done more work than them. So we became like the absolute baseline <laughs> 
so that was that was a pretty wild six months. So what you're saying is you not only dragged your own grades down, but the grades of others who felt like they didn't have to try because of you playing Call of Duty too. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Well, it's it's very much against the kind of we're all in this together ethos of Call of Duty and and sort of soldiers working together to achieve great things. This well, was like following two people who'd kind of gone AWOL and uh, using them as your moral compass. Hey, I mean, what ended up being more relevant in your later life? Call of Duty 2 or whatever you had to uh, write about in your English Definitely final. Call of Duty 2. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. I mean, history has proved you right, question mark? Um, uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Part, I went back a few years um, after I left for a kind of a... Uh, there was like a dinner for all the people in our year or those who wanted to go and... The principal was kind of doing the rounds and talking to people saying, oh, you know, what do you do now? Basically sounding people out to see if there were, you know, how rich they were and how much sort of money there was potentially in them. And if they were like, oh, I'm a lawyer now and she'd talk to them, and be very nice and it'd be like, and what do you do? I was like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a games journalist. <laughs> and it was just you've never seen someone disappear faster. It was truly, <laughs> truly embarrassing. Oh, wow. um, but there you go. Yeah, it's uh, it's that's amazing on uh, so many levels uh, because <laughs> when i became a games journalist later on i did email an old english teacher of mine they were very proud that i'd got landed a professional writing gig um, but I, I i never really got beyond um i never got beyond a level so it's very different and this was you know uh, a, a filthy old state school so uh, maybe the standards were just lower i guess um uh, no, it's, it's it's all good i'm proud and that's all that matters i think so yeah um so um did you have uh, what was your history with that whole uh, lineage of uh, N Gamer, NGC, N sixty four, Superplay before yeah. you got the job? Yeah, so I'd 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 been reading since N sixty four. It was kind of a sort of a communal thing. I had a couple of friends who were really into it, so we'd sort of share stuff. Some of them would. Yeah, it had a big focus on. Um, there were lots of like leaderboards for best times because this was before online leaderboards. So you'd send them into the mag. And I had friends who really got into that kind of culture. I was always too bad at games for it. But we were all, you know, you know, we were all super into the mag. And yeah, I'd read N64, I'd read NGC. Um, not like 100%. Like I, I, you know, I'd say I read it like semi, semi religiously. There were, you know, periods of my life where I was just busy with university or whatever mm. and a few bits went out the window but you know enough that when it turned into end gamer you know i was excited to see that transition kind of knew that transition was coming um so yeah it was it was definitely like the main magazine i'd read i dabbled with others not really got into them i'd bought a couple of uh, issues of edge and just not understood half the complicated words <laughs> um which should have probably sounded some alarm bells for my oxford uh, success <laughs> um and uh, Games Master as well. I read a lot of Games Master. I had um, I used to get letters printed in Games Master. I could never get one printed in N64 and NGC. But <laughs> Games Master, I, uh, I had the kind of I thought they had a format, so I used to send in letters to this very fixed format under different names as an exercise to see if I could get them printed, mm. uh, and did. Yes, that's because uh, magazines don't receive like loads and loads of letters, so they were probably just delighted to have them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I suppose it depends on the magazine, but the ones I've worked on, it varies. PC Gamer definitely had uh, loads of letters, but it varied on some of the other mags I worked on. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's interesting stuff. I guess I'll, I'll tell you a tiny bit about what I was doing in 2006, just to 
uh, kind of um, set the stage. I'll talk more about uh, getting my first job in games media uh, next week. Um, so not next week. Next time we do uh, another of these year podcasts. Yeah. So 2007, when we cover that year. Um, so in 2006, I had uh, just finished my A-levels. I did quite badly. I didn't really revise. Um, in 2005, uh, I kind of scuffed my... AS level results uh, via a much more embarrassing game than Call of Duty 2, which was Dynasty Warriors 3. Um, <laughs> I kind of played that instead of revising. Um, but I, to be honest, I kind of had some bad experiences in college and just sort of fell out of love with, you know, education, I guess, um, and, and the kind of the systems of it. But really, I was as petulant and should have just been revising instead of, you know, um, beating the shit out of Lubu or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, That's a wild get, like... I, I I I wouldn't have been able to name I I wouldn't have known anyone back then who was playing those were games that only existed in games magazines mm. as far as I was concerned then the kind of the the sort of dynasty warriors sort of um renaissance seemed to happen you know much more recently that they suddenly became kind of hip but well you were the guy you were the guy who kept um Koei going in the UK all those years. Well there was um there was a demo of Dynasty Warriors 3 with uh the issue of O PSM2. I don't know. I don't remember how you abbreviate that magazine. Yeah, uh, OPM. It's OPM2. Uh, where they um, it had the uh, ICO demo on it. So I remember it being a very. Um, I remember just like playing that over and over again. And Dynasty Warriors 3 was one of the other games, not the top game on there. There was like what there were like seven games, and that was like seventh or whatever. So right. right. <laughs> I tried it and I'm kind of impressed that there was this game where you, there were hundreds of men on screen you could beat up um, yeah. because that seemed like a really novel game type. I think those games always do. Then you you play one, and you feel like you've played them all, um, which I think is still the case no matter how pretty they look these days. Um, but yes, uh, that was me in 2006, and then I was kind of just wandering around. My period of doing nothing was a lot longer than yours, so July 2006 to March 2007, I was basically just working at a convenience store. And Did you also eat ice cream and watch Smallville? I did watch Smallville, <laughs> nice. um, but I was watching it on E4, so I, I wasn't in control of my fate like you were. <laughs> uh, what, what's funny is like uh, that period of, is where I really fell out with Smallville, actually. Oh, um, right. What do you consider the best season of Smallville? For me, it's three. Um, I thought that, that kind of nailed it, but uh, do you have a preference, Matthew? Uh, it sort of all blurs in together. There was, which, is the, which is the one where, spoiler alert, his dad dies. That's season five, I think. Oh, I, I quite I like that. that. I hate myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't remember. There was, there was a certain point where it started getting a bit more Superman-y. Like, the, you know, there was like, you got like the, there were like early glimpses of there maybe being like a cape in the mix or something. You know, it, when it started leaning a bit more into the, oh, this is like proper Superman, like forming stuff. Um, I, I kind of really got into it, but I feel that was a few seasons in. Yeah, so that was uh, around season five. Uh... Uh, early on, it was just him spending his whole time um, trying to uh, keep that that woman in the friend zone who went on to set up that sex <laughs> cult. Uh... <laughs> yeah, Chloe Sullivan. Yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's like a better plot than any of the plots in Smallville. I would say. Um... <laughs> That's a pretty fair criticism. Okay, so um, changing tack then. Uh, (laughs) I thought we'd go through some of the headlines from 2006. And I I wrote down in our notes uh, five headlines from 2006 and then uh, put uh, seven headlines in eventually. Um, I kind of just wanted to give people an overview of what was going on at that time because they'll probably hear a couple of these and think, oh, yeah, that is what was happening uh, then. Um, So... Uh, E3 2006, uh, big E3. This was the year that the PS3 uh, launched in Japan and North America. It launched in 2007 in Europe, and then the Wii launched um, worldwide, I believe, in 2006. Um, yeah, that's right. So 
it was a big E3 for everyone involved, really. Um, and so one of Xbox's big gambits against the uh, PS3 uh, for the 360 was Peter Moore revealing a ludicrous GTA 4 tattoo <laughs> as it was announced that exclusive DLC uh, would come to the 360 version of uh, GTA 4. Um, so Michael Pactor at the time, the analyst, said it cost $75 million, this deal. So I thought you were going to say the tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. They had a lot of money to throw around. <laughs> It was um this was like really the start I think of those bullshit this is exclusive to this platform announcements because that DLC it turned out to be the uh, the Lost and Damned and Ballad of Gay Tony two excellent expansions for uh, GTA 4. They both came to PS3 uh, a year later. So it was kind of horseshit this whole thing really. Yeah, that yeah. it did feel like it it felt interesting that something that had been defined by PlayStation up to that point, you know, it felt like a big power play. Yes. At the time that, you know, Xbox, GTA, and I think it, whether or not there was any one game that did this, but that generation definitely had, um, everyone was on the side of Xbox, it felt like, definitely journalists, mm. you know, anecdotally in the office, everyone played 360, even most of the people on the PlayStation magazines did most of their home gaming or multiplayer gaming on 360, and that kind of in my head... I sort of always sort of throw that in with those exclusivity deals. I don't think one necessarily made the other happen, but it just felt like the wind was in their sails. Yes. I think the the big thing here is a, it was a perception win for Microsoft. It it sh- it showed that they meant business this generation. Like you say, GTA, the very coveted um, PS2 uh, exclusive, although it wasn't, it did come to other platforms, but it always came to PS2 first. And uh, yeah, it, for whatever reason, Sony didn't manage to secure their own deal here and lost out to Microsoft. And uh, it was ultimately um, good for everyone involved. I imagine that that 75 million, I think GTA 4, I think it had a 100 million budget. So, you, you know, you know, imagine that's covered a massive amount of their costs. Right, yeah. Um, and that was obviously an amazing game for the time. So, yeah. Um, but it was a big E3 for Xbox generally. They had Mass Effect, Bioshock, Prey, Fable 2, Forza uh, 2, Halo 3, and Rockstar Table Tennis were all shown in some capacity. And that yeah. that was like they are at full strength. And they they really like made the most of having that extra year ahead of their PlayStation. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. It was a great year. It was a weird, weird year as well. I think some of these things seemed, were a little vague when they were shown. I remember like Bioshock wasn't quite... It was mm. quite early days. Well, it wasn't early days, but they weren't quite showing what it was. And um, I think it, it felt like the first big year of slightly confusing hype trailers as well. Um, yes. Which is obviously now just like, you know, comes fitted as standard. This was like a real kind of like E3 at its peak kind of moment mm. in terms of uh, the spectacle of it. Uh, so, yeah, I think... Uh, the tattoo is obviously quite a famous moment, but I would say that all of the manufacturers did have famous moments around this time. Uh, so the uh, second headline I got here is um, the PS3 price was revealed as a massive uh, $599 in North America, ended up being $424.99 in the UK. Um, but uh, Ken Kotaragi of Sony at the time said it was probably too cheap. Uh <laughs> And the PS3 had PS3's problems had already began the year before. Like the uh, the console was revealed at E3 2005, I believe, with the banana shaped controller uh, that was later revised into just being the DualShock <laughs> Three. And uh, yeah, there was the sense that I don't know Sony had just uh, just didn't quite have the games, and there was this bloated, really expensive console that 
people didn't really want even though it had like the blu-ray player which was um you know kind of coveted but not as attractive as the dvd player and the ps2 yeah what did you make of um sony at the time with all of this stuff yeah, I, I must admit, like I'd, I'd spent so many years not being, uh, you know, I, this I, in two thousand and six, I should say, I was a big, you know, Nintendo head, and I think this was still a time where a lot of people were quite tribal, or due to age, you know, I wasn't in a place to go. Well, I'll probably pick them all up. That just wasn't something that happened. Mm. You know, in my head, I was well, I'll get the next Nintendo thing because I like the, you know, the revolution and what then became the Wii. Um, that's what I was excited for. I was quite excited for the 360, having sort of seen one in the flesh and, and um, it, you know, almost derailed my life because of Call of Duty 2. <laughs> but, um, the, you know, the th- I don't know, like the PS3, because I, I wasn't a big PS2 person. I had one, but I, I wasn't, I wouldn't call myself a super fan. Like I came to it quite late. Um, and likewise with the PS3, I eventually, I don't think I got one until after Uncharted 2 came out. Mm. Um, I got it for Christmas, in fact. It was the last games console I got for Christmas. <laughs> um, you know, a grown man asking for such things is always slightly shameful. But My, my parents did buy me a Nintendo Switch, actually. Um, oh, nice. But but they they rolled it into a birthday present. It was that old deal. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that scam. <laughs> um, I think a, Christ- a Christmas console is so exciting. Like, that's a proper like childhood thing even when you're a grown-up and it happens you're like oh this is great mm, um that was that the ps3 slim you got that year i think it came out yeah um, i think that's what yeah that's yeah i wasn't necessarily waiting for it but so i kind of came to it particularly le- particularly late can't say there was much about it i was interested i don't think i even probably like registered the price of it at the time like i i wasn't engaged like across all games i was quite you know the stuff i read and the stuff i was interested in was was pretty much purely nintendo Mm. Um, unlike now where I feel like I have to have a basic grasp of everything I didn't feel that way back then because I had no idea it was going to be a job so you know I, <laughs> I wasn't like prepping for that yeah so for me around that time I, I, I had an original Xbox I had a PS2 I was definitely PS2 focused but I kind of always wanted everything and that, as an adult with disposable income I have uh, made that happen for myself including buying a GameCube and a massive uh, collection of old games because I don't know emotional problems or something <laughs> but the um the 360 I did pick up a couple of the magazines around launch and was like sort of blown away by the amount of games they seemed to have uh, mm. and also games that didn't seem to be coming to PlayStation so obviously Perfect Dark and Cameo ended up being kind of a a bit of a uh, not a beloved one-two punch from rare um on the right. 360 but they did also have like condemned which is a really cool first person game for the time yeah, yeah, yeah. from monolith and then oblivion was already kind of around at that point people were talking about oblivion as being like a big deal off the back of morrowind and um yeah prey was around and everyone knew halo was coming and i think mass effect maybe existed in some form but it was um yeah it was it just seemed like it had really fulfilled the promise of being this kind of like console that also has pc dna you know yeah 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 so all right then so nintendo at e3 2006 um the na- the wii name had been revealed before e3 that year uh, according to my research uh, which i think was a good idea because it meant that the um the e3 presentation that year wasn't about the name um yeah. even though obviously journalists would make jokes about the name or whatever <laughs> uh, instead i don't know if you remember this matthew but this was the year that um uh miyamoto was on stage being a conductor and um, waving the controller while a whole bunch of software was um, playing on the um, on the screen, um, and it's a real 
good spectacle, I would say. That yeah. Sold a lot of people on the potential of the Wii, even though what he was doing didn't really correspond to how the Wii actually worked. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, that was. I think they got away with a lot then because, you know, basically until December, no one really knew kind of what it really did or how it really behaved. Um, so they could do stuff like that. It felt like that was the beginning of their big, like, you know, Miyamoto had always been famous, obviously, in Push, but like, they they definitely stepped that up, and those Nintendo E three conferences became pretty pretty sort of spectacular in their own way in that year as well. It was um, yeah, that was always a fun. It was definitely a fun period to cover. They just went Miyamoto crazy and pushed him for like you know everything, regardless of whether or not he'd actually had too much of a hand in it. I think. Mm, and you mentioned that later on that Nintendo would roll that back and focus more on the individual creators, which ended yeah, up being a good. Yeah, maybe that's because he's getting you know he's you know getting a bit old. Mm. and doesn't want to kind of be up there, you know, pretending to conduct or other strenuous activities. <laughs> they had a lot of cool games there, though. They had um, Mario Galaxy there. This was uh, the third E3 for uh, Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, uh, the final E3, obviously, released yeah. later that year. Um, Wii Sports, uh, the reception to Wii Sports was really positive at the time. Um, mm. People were really sold on it. And uh, they also showed off uh, Metroid Prime 3 too. So um, there was a lot going on there and a really kind of good early burst of software. And even um, Red Steel looked kind of good on the... Um, on the <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to reopen that wound later, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it was just... They just really sold you on the kind of dream of it. Uh, it was just, I don't know, a really good bit of marketing. Like a really good bit of marketing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, so... Other stuff going on that year. Um, DS Lite launched in uh, March in Japan and then June around the world. Uh, it perfected arguably the best Nintendo handheld ever. Do you remember the DS Lite coming out? Yeah, I again, I think it because I, yeah, just because of generally where I was at, I was I wasn't like counting that you know I didn't have the money to buy one. Um, the first thing I did when I got my job on Endgamer was go and buy one because I didn't actually own a DS. Hmm. Um, I hadn't owned one at uni, uni and. Um, yeah, I took a bus into Winchester and, and bought one from Argos um, <laughs> alongside Castlevania Dawn of Sorrows, a majestic game, and uh, Phoenix Wright, also a winner. Um, yeah, so, you know, I loved it. I, you know, I was instantly, like, super into it. But I also felt like, shit, I have to sell myself as this huge DS expert because <laughs> this is, like, going to be half of what I'm writing about from now on. And I didn't even own one. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of exciting but also terrifying yeah so at this point the ds was firmly entrenched as the uh they were doing these kind of like uh casual friendly i suppose touch uh, generations i think they called it yes um these kind of advertising campaigns with you know like you say generations of of people playing these different games this was the um i believe this was the year of uh, brain training as yeah, well yeah so, yeah, and that coupled with the DS Lite bringing, um, you know, kind of a better lighting to the screen of the DS and a better overall look, they kind of look a generation apart, actually. It was a really nice device for 2006, the DS Lite. I had the white one and yeah, yeah. it looked beautiful when it was closed and the screen was nice and bright and the amount of software they had was amazing at the time. Mm. Um, it was definitely the most exciting thing going on in gaming at that point, I thought. Um, but, yeah, so... You have that, and then uh, this was also quite a big year for Final Fantasy. Um, I would say it's the start of 
what seemed to be quite a lot of problems in getting these games made by Square Enix. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you have Final Fantasy XIII revealed at E3 2006, only to release in 2010 in the West. It did come out in 2009 in Japan. A uh, long wait for that one. And uh, again, that not everyone is delighted by, but these days seem to have its own fan base that appreciates its kind of uh, very good pro- uh, progression systems and combat and strategies and all that stuff. Mm. Alongside that, um, Final Fantasy Versus Thirteen was revealed, uh, a sort of action game that was meant to tie into Final Fantasy Thirteen in quite a tenuous way, I think. Um, and that would release as Final Fantasy Fifteen uh, more than a decade later. Um, which what a is, mess that was! What was the what was the kind of overarching name for all those? It was uh, Fabula Nova Crystallis. Blimey! Just from that, you'd know it was a disaster. I was very excited at the time because I was a, a big Final Fantasy head, and um, they. They uh, they'd all been pretty good up until that point. Um, Twelve was uh, yet to come out, uh, and I was I was pretty excited about their future at this point. This is probably the peak of my Final Fantasy fandom, like watching right. Advent Children and you know being kind of obsessed with the characters and stuff like that. And so I thought these games were going to be amazing. Um, and to be fair, I love both those games. So it just took a long time for them to come out. Um, yeah. And and Final Fantasy fifteen didn't even really resemble Versus thirteen that much beyond the kind of main characters and the idea of a road trip um together Mm. and uh then there was one more game in there and that was um final fantasy uh type zero um that was a psp game that eventually released on ps4 uh but yeah that that didn't come out till 2010 either um so you got a big old wait here from announcement to release and yeah uh they seem to be a bit more on it these days with um actually getting stuff out and made uh but i think like some of their directors uh just seem pretty um pretty good at this stuff and i think the uh, upcoming 16s in very good hands but uh, yes um another thing matthew uh capcom closed clover studio uh studio of, exe- uh, of of very kind of well-regarded uh capcom staff who'd formed a kind of spin-off studio that was still wholly owned by capcom uh, made uh, a few a few beautiful Joe games, but their two major games were God Hand and Akami. And, and Capcom announced their plans to close the studio at this at this mm. point. Did you have a lot of attachment to this studio and their games? Um, from afar, I kind of came to them late. I mean, I, I I liked Beautiful Joe on GameCube. It's not it's not my favourite of of Cameo's games. Um, and God Hand, I played after the fact uh, and like it enough. I'm not like I'm not like a major God Hand nut or anything. Um, and they call me, you know, obviously a great thing, but yeah, at the time, um, yeah, cause I cause remember cause it was all sort of tied up with those, uh, was it the Capcom five, the games on coming to GameCube, yeah, yeah. They had that sort of exclusivity do. And, and really the only one I was ever properly interested in was, was Resi four, um, you know, which, which I was sort of more interested in that side of things, I guess it, I may be like, I don't think I was as tuned into kind of creators back then mm. necessarily so like i don't think i'd be able to say like oh this is made by cameo or this is made by whoever um you know that came later so i don't know studio kind of comings and goings were maybe lost on me a bit um but obviously in hindsight yeah you see kind of you know what a powerhouse this is and and sort of well not what a strange decision but you know wherever capcom were at that they couldn't kind of house those those particular games um did you watch the uh recent mccarmy interview yes on the channel um, archipel yes it was a fantastic documentary what did you think of it yeah i thought it yeah i thought it was really great as well because he's a man who you don't hear a huge amount from Mm. like i would say uh, you know again from friends who've interviewed him they say even that those opportunities you know he's pretty kind of private 
you know, he's not like a, you know, a big kind of gregarious tell-all type. So just to see someone have this huge chunk of time where he was going to talk quite openly about all his games, you know, his current studio happenings, you know, just just as an insight, it's a, like an invaluable thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and some of his insights are funny because, you know, you sort of see actually he is, you know, what he values and, and where Mikami's at odds with certain maybe certain preconceptions of, of stuff that's important in these games and what he does and doesn't like, mm. um, I thought was quite funny. Yeah, for sure. It, that said, that is well worth tracking down. It's he, He talked about every single game he had a credit on, I believe. Yeah. And uh, yeah, very, very honest and very, uh, very confident of just a, such a, like a, a kind of unimpeachable confidence to him mm. um, driving around. I think he's got Ferrari that he's driving yeah. around in that video. <laughs> and he's in this kind of like, I think it's the um, their uh, Tango Gameworks studio empty because of the pandemic. Obviously, yeah, being interviewed there and it's, it has a really kind of like just a really cool, odd atmosphere to it. He's wandering yeah. around this empty parking lot. Um, yeah, just fascinating stuff. Uh, so yeah, I was I was very tuned into it at the time. I was quite big on Capcom games at that moment. Um, I'll talk about this a, a little bit uh, when we get to the games of uh, our games of the year. Mm-hmm. But I was, yeah, I was just getting really, I'd just come off the back of being massively into Resident Evil 4, which launched in uh, late 2005 on PS2, which is when I first played it. And so, yeah, it was at this point that I I bought Beautiful Joe for £3 from Woolworths and got massively into that, (laughs) even though it's an infuriatingly hard game, but it it looked amazing. Oh, yeah. To be honest, it was was good, but it's a bit incoherent to play uh, in terms of the action going on on screen. It's not as legible as, say, um, a Bayonetta uh, would be, you know, a few years later. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, nonetheless, I was kind of aware of who Kamiya was and who Mikami, uh, who Mikami was. So mm. this seemed like a big blow because it was Capcom saying kind of goodbye to these creators who had basically defined all of their software for the last five, ten years. Yeah, And then they would kind of have a weird few years where they hadn't quite figured out what they were in the next generation. Yeah, it's it's odd because I always think of Shu Takumi, who was kind of of that group. He's the creator of Ace Attorney, um, for those that don't know the name. Um, you know, he kind of joined at a similar time to Kamiya. They both came up under Mikami. They were both sort of acolytes of his, and he kind of produced their games. You know, Mikami produced Ace Attorney and kind of helped that kind of come to be. Um, and, like, every, yeah, all that lot seemed to lead, and in Arbor as well, um, then all that lot seemed to leave together, apart from Shutakumi, who seems to be sort of stuck there. <laughs> Occasionally, they throw him a bone and let make a ghost trick or something. Um, and otherwise, it's just sort of I don't know. I have this image of him sort of chained to his typewriter, churning out detective plots for various Ace Attorney <laughs> spin-offs. Um, you know, and I wonder why he didn't like you know go with that lot and and sort of give them all the good good writing that their games maybe needed i would say is maybe like the weak spot of that group of creators yeah um is in is in the actual the words yeah but um you know well i guess we'll never know what happened there yeah exactly I, it was weird um i i couldn't quite tell if mikami had formally gone with platinum or if he was kind of brought in to work on vanquish i think he was actually part of platinum at first right and then he left obviously to form tango gameworks later on and make the evil within but um yeah it was uh he had a lot of interesting stories about what led to vanquish at that point and pitching and stuff like that that documentary really is worth watching yeah it's great but they they, they're that uh, channel in general like the 
developers they interview are absolutely fascinating and a lot of them it is like the best interview with them that you'll have heard so like the creator of persona or you know uh, pseudo 51 there's a really good interview with him as well yeah yeah i love that channel too i ended up I, there's a, a interview with uh yosh Amano as well the final fantasy artist oh yeah where you see inside his studio and he's got all of the old pieces of artwork that form the logos and the concept art and it's just what a treat to get that yeah. access um yeah so yeah at that time then capcom i think then basically was figuring itself out for the rest of that generation until i would say the last few years with uh, resident evil 2 remake and monster hunter world they seem to be have re-established their identity yeah definitely we'll mm. have to do an episode down the line about like capcom yes yeah. they're just one of the craziest rides <laughs> oh yeah for sure um yeah absolutely Okay, right then. So yeah, finally, I was gonna. I already mentioned this, but the uh, obviously the Wii and the PS3 uh, launched basically. So from here, the uh, next generation uh, console war had had begun, um, and it was kind of the uh, waning days of the PS2. The uh, original Xbox was basically already done at this point, apart from um, uh, third party titles, and uh, the GameCube had struggled for a couple of years as well. So yeah, it was uh, it was definitely like a, a tumultuous time, and everyone's fortunes would change in the uh, next couple of years. No one would be where they were before, which was really interesting. So, mm. Matthew, um, we'll take a short break here, but then we'll uh, get into our top ten. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Welcome back, Matthew. Hello. It's like we never left. Indeed. Uh, so, uh, with this, we're going to count down our top tens, kind of borrowing this from uh, the podcast, uh, now defunct, Chet and John's reassuringly finite gaming playlist, where they would <laughs> alternate. But they do this on the big picture as well, don't they? They alternate when they do a kind of, uh, you know, their favourite movies by a director, they'll yeah. alternate. Um, plus, you know, counting down top tens, it's an easy format to understand. <laughs> um, so, Matthew, I'll allow you to go first and yeah. uh, blow me away with your number ten. Right. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put forward and say some of these earlier choices speak to the fact that I was at university and came to certain things late, and the Wii happened quite late in the year. So I would say there's a gulf between the very top of my list and the bottom. Should I also add, Matthew, that we for our, our criteria here, we have basically picked the times. In terms of when they kind of count for the year, we've picked games that released in Europe in 2006. So Yeah, I have got a couple which I played through work that I wanted to include, mm. but I'll hopefully justify them. That, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm completely fine with that. But you, you might also see a couple of games that released, if you're an American listener, a couple of games that released in uh, North America in 2006 that would later release in 2007. They will be on my list for 2007. So yeah. Yeah, um, that's basically the rules, and we've gone for uh, it's the best games. We've gone for our favorite games. Yeah, they're, they're, they're my they're my favorite games. So I'm going to kick off with number ten. Uh, I don't know if this is a surprising choice coming from me. I'm going to pick Guitar Hero Two. Hmm. Yeah. So a huge moment for rhythm action, right? This was the first one to come to 360, and uh, this was the point where it was becoming a proper cultural phenomenon, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think technically Guitar Hero 1 and 2 both came out in the UK in 2006. Yeah, yeah, you might be um, right. I, I played 2 on the PS2. My brother got it for Christmas. Um, and I still, to this day, I you know, whenever I go to a friend's house, I will inevitably see a plastic guitar 
mouldering away somewhere in a corner or under a sofa or in a cupboard. Like there's an elephant's graveyard of this peripheral, <laughs> which speaks, I think, to the how how sort of prolific it was. Mm. Um, I thought it was just you know I'm not particularly into the into like rock music. It's not really my deal. Um, but I I thought this was just such a fantastic idea, so brilliantly executed. I love the fact that I think it's one of the one of the weirdly most sort of accessible games on a difficulty front. The fact that even on easy you still get the appeal of that game, you know, playing with the three keys and strumming away. You can still get the basic feel of it. I'm just too cack-handed <laughs> to do any of the extreme stuff that people post on YouTube or whatever. Um, but yeah, I just, I love the connection between, you know, the, you know, what your fingers were doing and what was happening on screen. Um, I actually quite liked a lot of them. I did actually end up quite liking a lot of the music in it, stuff that I wasn't massively familiar with. Um I I uh, I went out soon after and bought a best of cheap trick off the back of uh, Surrender, <laughs> which it kicks off with early. Um, Were you a dad I, born in the 1970s or something? Yeah, <laughs> it was like it was only a best of. It wasn't like I did any research and found out an album <laughs> I should get. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I love the sensation of playing this game. You know, I was I was I love rhythm games in general. I always have. Um, this one felt like uh, just so close. The actual sensation of playing it was was so sort of satisfying. I love the posturing of it. I mean, hilariously, when I play it, I'm sort of hunched over and so nervous about missing it that it's like a you know a kid kind of plucking their way through their first guitar lesson. Like, <laughs> just I'm, not, like I'm not strutting around the living room or anything, you know. Um, you know, I feel very nervous about that. You know, when you kind of kick it up to enter star power, and um, you, I don't want to do that too hard, just in case I like lose where my fingers are on on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just I thought this was great, so polished, um, just crazy kind of production values, like the actual music they had in it. I know they were covers, but I thought they sounded absolutely amazing. Mm. Um, you know, they they and it, it kind of I don't know. I think they drove the drove that particular game into the ground. Activision definitely did, By yeah. doing so much of it, but it's really, like... When I was thinking back on it, I was like, yeah, that was that's, that was brilliant. Like, when I... You know, that's a game where, in one song, you have the full extent of how brilliant that game is. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think it's a, 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 real, a real winner. I can't speak to the song list. Maybe one is better, three is better, whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, Guitar Hero 2. Yeah. Game. So I remember there was a period of about two years where every single games media party we had at like imagine a house party we would have guitar hero 2 there or guitar hero 3 or whatever it was such a staple yeah. of going to those kind of parties did you have that sort of scene in bath as well uh, annoyingly in bath it was always fucking sing star and i hate karaoke <laughs> And it's basically SingStar because there's like two or three people who are good at SingStar and like have their song. And it, and it, it became, there was always this sort of weird ceremony around it, which I really hated. It gets to the point of the evening where, you know, you're all at someone's house having a nice chat. And then suddenly someone's telling you to shut the fuck up because we all have to pray silence <laughs> for the Lords of Rock <laughs> as they emerge to do their legendary duet. Yeah. Um, no offense, should they listen to this podcast, they know who they are. Um, but as someone who is too shy for karaoke, I think I've mumbled my way through um, a bit of common people or something. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, 
Yeah, I just can't. I, I just can't do sing star. Give me, give me Guitar Hero any day or Rock Band because then someone can show off on the mic and um, you know people can play the guitars and someone can do permanent damage to their wrists <laughs> hitting the the hard hard plastic of those drums. <laughs> I do uh, like the idea that you did the William Shatner version of Common, common People um, yeah. in SingStar. I want to live like common people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, that's a great choice. Um, I, I didn't pick that one because I didn't quite get into Guitar Hero till about 2007 to 2009. Like, um, basically ended for me when the Beatles one came out, which I very much enjoyed um, and probably will feature on my list for that year. But that was the that was the one where I was like, oh, this is kind of the peak of it. And then it was already being over overdone by then um that series um the guitar hero series and then yeah there were just too many and people lost interest pretty quickly but yeah um, all right then my number 10 uh, i suspect this will be higher up on your list matthew uh, my number 10 is gears of war is that on your list gears of war isn't on my list wow okay interesting <laughs> so this is people might think this is quite low down because I, I would say that this was one of the most acclaimed games of that year possibly the most acclaimed up there with uh, oblivion um but i don't think gears of war appealed to me in the sense of its fictional universe i found very irritating mm. and the big dudes shouting at each other um but i can't deny it was technically an in- incredible um third person shooter and it was really really like a genre changer uh, just a, instantly people were like okay they've solved what third person shooting is well but- and and that's what all we were playing for the next four years, it felt like. Yeah, for which sure. was cover shooters that weren't as good as Gears. Mm. When you even when you play Watch Dogs uh, Legion now, you know when you're in cover shooting at people, that is a, the Gears of War system. People haven't figured out a new way of doing <laughs> yeah. that. That was it. Gears of War was the solution to that system. I do yeah. think that it did, did lead to a lack of variety because there weren't many interesting spins on it from other developers here and there there were um i quite like how max Payne 3 uh, fused together um yeah cover shooting and bullet, bullet time but generally speaking yeah there was a bit too much of it around um yeah i again i because I, I didn't have a 360 probably factored into it i remember you know i think i've spoken about this before going you know when edge got it in going down and just being blown away that that was happening on a console i just couldn't believe it um but I think I got I kind of got into it a bit more around Gears two and three because I think they they just went fully preposterous. I think one still you know I had I, I've got a couple of friends who were like oh one is really tongue in cheek it's actually a very sort of subtly funny game and I'm like I is really it? don't know is like, it though no it really <laughs> took itself seriously it thought those guys were cool and I, they they look disgusting they're so meaty and muscly they look like just gristle don't they they're so unpleasant yeah it wasn't just the uh the cover shooting that was uh, pervasive it was this whole game characters looking like this really kind of like right down to like the arkham asylum game batman yeah, looks a where bit commissioner gordon is just like <laughs> beefcake basically a cupboard <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and um i think that for a long time people mischaracterize this as when you make a game in unreal engine 3 this is what a character looks like <laughs> yeah, right, which yeah. was obviously preposterous but um it, that's because it, that was such an influential type of character design so I, I I must admit I don't like the way that gears kind of appropriated. Well, that's not that's not fair. Other people appropriated gears um, to make quite naff uh, shooters for a few years afterwards. But mm. I can't deny that Gears of War was like a real a real moment and also a proper next gen game. Like that was the thing. It was the big game at um, 
E3 uh, that year, and uh, I believe um, Kojima went and played it, and it was. I think, um, yeah, there were quite a few luminaries went and, and saw. Yeah, what the big it's, deal I swear, was. it's it's one of these games where I think there's there's probably an infamous Miyamoto quote where there's a picture of Miyamoto looking at it, looking very unimpressed, and then someone will ask him about it and say, "Oh, we saw you looking at Gears. You know, why don't you make that?" And he'll say. You know, oh, I could, but I choose not to, hmm. um, which seemed to be like a, a recurring thing for like E3 for around that period for about five years. There was always a big story of Miyamoto is dismissive of someone else's shiny game, like Assassin's Creed, I think was another one. Hmm. But I'm pretty sure there's a Miyamoto. Yes, I choose not to make Gears. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just yeah, obviously, and I wouldn't want to play the Miyamoto version of Gears. That's not the right the right fit, really. <laughs> no, um, but I think it, it's interesting because um, I do think this series had a bit of a shelf life. Uh, by the time Gears of War Judgment came out, I think people were kind of over it um, by the end of the generation. Um, it didn't quite have the same goodwill that uh, Uncharted did um, yeah, to last it through. Um, weirdly, I think it sort of on the way back. I, I actually think Gears Five. I really rate it. I think it, I, I thought it was a, a real standout game from last year. Um, I, d- I just thought it had a great sense of fun and spectacle, and it had a little bit of open world stuff, which kind of changed the flavor of it. Um, I, I felt to me like, oh, this is actually a, of all Microsoft's kind of teams that they've built to kind of carry on all their classic games, which is kind of their business model. This was one where I was like, actually, the coalition have kind of clicked into place, hmm. and Gears Five's good, and I'm genuinely excited to see what they do with Gear Six. Yeah. Um, which I, I after Gears Four, I wasn't quite feeling it, but like I'm way more confident of Gears than I am Halo now. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Which is a whole other thing. Yeah, we can talk about that next year. <laughs> so, what's your number nine, Matthew? Uh, my number nine is Tomb Raider Legend. Mm, not on my list. Um, which was not not a stunning game, uh, but sort of triggered. Uh, it was like the f- a first big sort of reboot, I guess, for. Lara Croft after Angel of Darkness, which was the sort of disastrous uh, cause, sort of disastrous goodbye to it. Mm. Uh, this was Crystal Dynamics coming in, and they made their first trilogy, which is Tomb Raider Legend, Tomb Raider Anniversary, and then Tomb Raider Underworld, uh, which are games I thought got progressively better uh, and will probably be featuring on my lists in later years. Um, but Tomb Raider Legend kind of began this and took some important steps, like by making Lara Croft quite nice to control. Like she no longer can. I, I hate the controls in the original Tomb Raider. That kind of tile-based movement. Um, it had its day for sure. Yeah, I, I like. I remember I asked for Tomb Raider one for my birthday on PC um, because you know I'd just seen the images of it and Tomb Raider was everywhere and it was really like forced down your throat I was so shit at it I don't think I could even get through like level one of Tomb Raider because I found the controls so baffling and confusing admittedly trying to play it on a keyboard is just like um (laughs) but you know I love the idea of it um you know I think Tomb Raider Anniversary when that came along completely like delivered on the promise that I always I always knew was sort of there but this one took like important steps towards it it was a bit of a dumb action blockbuster it had all these terrible chase sequences and the combat is bad which is true of this sort of middle trilogy of games like they never ever got the combat right but it had some tombs with slightly sort of physics-y puzzles some quite nice platforming. I quite liked the Lara Crofts. It was uh, where uh, Keely Hawes came in mm, and did the yeah. voice. And it, they just kind of 
like reinvented itself. It it had a bit of a bit of a feel to it. Um, it's quite an easy game to, to to sort of like rather than love. Um, not not a classic. I don't think people kind of think much of it now. Um, I think Anniversary and Underworld hold up much better. But for me, I I, I kind of prefer this middle trilogy to the re, to the gritty thing that they did at the end. You know, with Tomb Raider and the uh, the other ones, Rise and Shadow. Um, this is more like kind of where I wanted the games always to sit and be. Um, and I thought this was Crystal, Crystal Dynamics really, really nailing it. So, yes, Tomb Raider Legend. Mm, it's quite interesting. They've kind of um, Tomb Raider now seems to find itself in the same position that this trilogy was at the end with Underworld, where you know the last entry doesn't appear to have been a smash hit when the first one seemed like it was a massive deal and sold really well yeah um and yeah now i would imagine having similar conversations about what is the next what does lara croft look like next yeah. time we do this i mean they're gonna bring her back at some point short like she's too valuable a thing yeah i think that there was yeah it was there was definitely like a hunger for a good tomb raider game at this point too like it had been a, a fair few years since uh, angel of darkness and yeah, and um, and even longer since the series had been sort of fresh and exciting. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, good- it's sort of weird because I remember reading the reviews all all throughout those early games, and they were never like absolute knockout, you know, ten out of tens. Yeah, like I think people really liked the first Tomb Raider. I think Tomb Raider Two was was probably even better received, but I think it was slightly downhill from that point on. Is how I remember it anyway. Yeah, it was just a perfect game for the PlayStation uh, One. The um, just the the controls worked well with a d-pad you yeah know? right and yeah. it was just and it looked nice um for the time so yeah i can see why it caught on but yeah two minutes two i've never been good but i must admit this trilogy passed me by so um yeah, yeah it's good well you're, you're prepared to hear a lot more about it in the uh, coming episodes yeah i look forward to it okay so my number nine matthew is uh, kingdom hearts 2 um which uh, is another game that i think released uh the year before in japan but released in europe in september of this year yeah um so Kingdom Hearts is very much a series I feel like I've grown out of. It's this, um, uh, you know, like... And that is why we are friends. <laughs> Final Fantasy creators uh, basically making a, a, a kind of a, a Japanese RPG-infused action game set in Disney worlds. Um, and I was really fond of the first one. The first one came out when I was 14, so I was very young when I was, I was playing it. Um, and then this one came out when I was, uh, I guess I was 18 at the time. Yeah, 18. So... It was just at the tail end of, I think, like, I would say Disney is one of those things where I loved Disney for a, until I was about, about like, a teenager and then fell out of love with Disney until I was kind of an adult again. And, yeah. And, and then, you know, now I really enjoy watching Disney films because you get over the hump of, like, this is for kids and all that stuff. You became more of a Shrek kind of kid. <laughs> yeah, I was big into the DreamWorks kind of. Yeah, that's, you had that DreamWorks attitude, I could tell. I felt like they had more cultural cachet, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, Kingdom Hearts 2 came out. Uh, this is where the story uh, gets incredibly confusing. Um, obviously, Kingdom Hearts is roundly mocked for its lore, um, for the ludicrous names of all of its spin-offs, uh, and all that stuff. I would say the, the series' number one drawback is the fact they just did not get them out fast enough. Um, mm. it, it was, I think Kingdom Hearts 3 came out either 2019 or 2018, but either way, it shouldn't have been more than 10 years after the last main entry, because <laughs> surely there's a ticking uh, timer on how old your fan base is. I mean, maybe some um, younger people picked it up with the hd remakes but 
by the time I was in my 30s when Kingdom Hearts 3 came out, I just, I, I didn't even play it. I just wasn't quite yeah. there. I, 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 my introduction to Kingdom Hearts, my brother really liked one and that, that was fine. I didn't, I didn't really want anything to do with it. Um, <laughs> but I, we had to review a couple on DS, maybe one on 3DS. There was a, and they had just the, you know, the names are infamous because they look like maths equations. <laughs> Three, you know, five, eight, it's like 365 two days. days divided by two times by heart equals bollocks it turns out <laughs> um, is that what the end gamer review said at the time uh they just weren't the platforms for those games because they were so um the production values were so key and core to them that they looked and had all these like disney quality stuff going on in them to then see that on the ds or whatever was just totally rank and they were oh awful just <laughs> Awful games. The 3DS um, <laughs> one I recall being quite nice looking. Um, that was quite lavish in terms of production values. Yeah, but the DS one, yeah, was definitely pared down. I would say. Don't they do that? I, I, the thing that was amazed me was the fact that you know it had all these Disney franchises, and they'd get like all you know original cast members back in to voice their role in the game, and that's I used to think, wow, that is that is someone throwing some money around. Yeah, it, it definitely has its moments. I would say Kingdom Hearts two because of that. So the the Mulan world has most of the original cast back. Um, one of them, a very nice looking world. They do a steamboat uh, willy level, which I think, again, looked amazing for the time um, and sounded really good. And yeah, they, the worlds were very well put together. There was a Tron level inside a computer in the game. Um, and it was a really good whistle-stop tour through all of these different Disney worlds. There's mm. a really good Pirates of the Caribbean level in this one too. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to kind of like just um, roundly mock Kingdom Hearts because I do think the second one, I was incredibly excited by it and I did think it lived up to the hype at the time. It's just one of those things that it's okay that you grow out of stuff, you know? And it's okay yeah. that if you haven't grown out of Kingdom Hearts, that's okay too. It's just, that's how I personally felt. Uh, it felt like years later. I just didn't quite have the same love for it, you know? One of my like very early memories on working on Endgamer was being very nervous to be there. You know, and I was like, oh, God, you know, this is quite my first job. And it was a big open plan office. So there were loads of other mag teams. But I remember one of the things that made me weirdly reassured was every day without fail, the deputy art editor on PSN 3 magazine would bollock on about Kingdom, where he was in Kingdom Hearts 2. Right. And just hearing a grown man being like, oh, I just can't beat Ursula the Sea Hag. And I remember thinking, oh, this is okay, actually. Like, this office is is full of, like, silly people. Yeah. And with silly concerns, like, they can't beat Ursula. And he just kept talking about Ursula and the Little Mermaid. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was quite nice and, and reassuring. So I, I owe, you know kingdom hearts to a couple of bonus points for that <laughs> yeah I, d- I don't have loads more to say about it other than to say that it's one of those games where i feel like there's a generation below me i think that got really into kingdom hearts and when the third one came out those are the people i saw giving like mega review scores to um to the third one so uh, you know i get that these things are a bit generational um, yeah a lot of uh i'd say heart scores overhead scores probably yeah for sure um, okay, so your number eight, Matthew. My number eight is Psychonauts. Mm, not on my list. Oh, there you go. It's not a lot of crossover so far. I never um, played it, so uh, yeah, you have to talk me through it. Yeah, so I, Psychonauts is Double Fine's characterful action platformer, I guess in the vein of a kind of Mario 64, probably more like the rare things in terms of there was a lot of collector thonning in it. Um, as an actual platforming game, not stellar and i would say what psychonauts does is begin my relationship with double fine 
of really loving their art style and concepts, but not really rating any of the games they make. Mm. Um, and Psychonauts is a total triumph, probably their best since they've been Double Fine, um, of kind of concept and style over content um in terms of it's not a very great platformer but the worlds that you you explore you're basically this sort of uh, you're at this sort of summer camp for you're this sort of psychic kid at uh, this sort of summer camp are they all psychics i can't remember if, if they're i think they're all relatively oddball characters and you basically pop into the heads of people and solve their mental anguish in a level which is shaped around that. So the things that trouble them, their sort of personalities manifest as these quite abstract levels, you know. And it's you know, that's interesting geometry and a little, almost like something that got like early hints of Mario Galaxy with sort of spherical platforms and like weird bending things. But, you know, you go into the head of an army guy and it's all kind of like a war zone and there's little mini tanks and there's this very sort of um, controlled um, sort of German guy and you go into his head and it's this big kind of abstract cube and you have to kind of sort of break into it. And it, so it's it's it gets by, I think, on the charm of... It's sort of it's art design. I think the writing's really, really funny, which has always been. You know, I think Tim Schafer is 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 and, and his team have have are are gifted at kind of lifting maybe like lifting seven out of tens into like eight or nine territory, <laughs> just because you're laughing in a way that you don't. You know, genuinely laughing at good jokes, which is is a rare thing. Um, has this huge cult appeal. Obviously, it sort of spawned the. Uh, the little VR thing, which I haven't played, uh, and Psychonauts 2 on the horizon. I'm interested to see if, like, it's just a more technically sound game. Mm. Um, not that this was, like, massively broken, but it had, a, like, it had the problems that all platforming games had, kind of, you know, back then, which was, like, slightly duff cameras and not maybe not the tightest controls. Um, but, yeah, real, real sense of style... Um, I was excited to carry on playing Tim Schafer games. I was a huge, huge Grim Fandango fan. Um, so, I'm, you know, I'm glad he's still out there doing his thing. Um, yeah, kind of a, just a, a good little one, and it seems to live on in enough places that you can still pick it up and play it. Um, I think I played it last on, I think it's an Xbox Live Arcade game, maybe. Mm. Um, and it should still be available there. But, uh, yeah, Psychonauts, it's a, a nice, funny funny little jumpy thing <laughs> ended up being a really good calling card for double fine i think uh, it was very much you know i touted i think by Schaefer himself as this game did not sell well um but we're really proud we made it and so a lot of the games that they get made in the next generation uh, like i think they made quite a few games for thq costume quest and stacking and yeah. these really cool xbox live arcade uh size games that that really gave them momentum, I think, and credibility. And obviously, they made Brutal Legend as well, which wasn't a huge hit. But I think all of that probably leads to Microsoft buying them. Like it all starts with Psychonauts. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, yeah, definitely. Like um, even if it didn't sell well, it's been it probably ended up it's ended up defining the studio. I think. And uh, yeah, that's a cool suggestion. Hmm. Mm, okay, so my number eight is Loco Roco on PSP. Oh. Uh, so. I uh, don't know if you ever played this, Matthew. I would imagine you never had a PSP. I, I had a PSP very late in the day, and then it got stolen by a burglar. Um, but he mm. didn't steal a DS, which I thought was hilarious, because the <laughs> DS had way better games, so he was clearly an um, uninformed burglar. <laughs> yeah, that's a terrible blunder, I think, on their, yeah. on their part. First it had, of all, I think it had... Um, 
I think in it at the time when he stole it, it had the Daxter game, the Jack and Daxter spin-off. Oh yeah, which I imagine you hated because yeah. So uh, you know, more really more for him. If anything, he did me a favor. He took Daxter out of my life. <laughs> that was a game that I bought. I bought Daxter, and I bought it because I think Gamespot gave it a really big score. And like, I should have waited for. I, I think a couple of the other reviews gave it more, like six out of ten, which is what it was worth, but. I think it got like a 9.2 or something. <laughs> I just automatically bought it. I, I had a PSP with a little bit of bias remorse. Um, yeah. Like I, I bought GTA. I think that was a feature on the back of the box. <laughs> it's like buy PSP, comes with bias remorse. <laughs> so I, it was a big deal, the PSP. Uh, Christmas 2005 in the UK, it like sold out. And um, I did end up getting one by importing one. And it was I was really invested in it because I really wanted to play GTA Liberty City Stories on, uh, on mm. PSP, which was amazing for the time, just to look at a whole GTA open world PS2 quality on this screen. The PSP screen was amazing for the time. Mm. Um, but Liberty City Stories was a lesser GTA, for sure. And it was the, the appeal ran thin quite quickly, so... I was really struggling to find other games I wanted yeah. to play on it. And I, I think the PSP did eventually get a very good library, but it was a real slow bird. I think by didn't go for Metal Gear Acid. I did. I enjoyed that. And I considered actually Metal Gear I've got a few honorable mentions I'll, I'll bring up later, right. but Metal Gear Acid 2 was, um, was a game I very much enjoyed on PSP. But um, it was still not Metal Gear. Mm. And uh, obviously, um, Konami were weirdly obsessed with the PSP and did four Metal Gear games um, <laughs> total, which is more than they did on PS3, which is very strange. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Loco Roco, it was a game I read about on oh, an old Japanese gaming news site. And like uh, Gematsu is its like uh, modern sort of successor, but I don't remember what the site was. Mm. And um, that uh, I was it, it mentioned this demo. Uh, of this game that had released in Japan. If you did X, Y, and Z with your PSP, you could download it um, from uh, the Japanese uh, PlayStation Store. And I did that to play it. Uh, they downloaded this 8 megabyte file for a Loco Roco demo. And it did just seem like not quite a system seller, but just a really good match for the console. Uh, mm. PSP was hobbled by its lack of a second analog stick, which the Vita would later fix, but no one cared about the Vita, obviously, apart yep. from indie devs um, and people who enjoyed indie games. But the PSP... It had this platforming game with these very colourful, uh, friendly blobs. A couple of the designs were a little bit racist, and uh, <laughs> just to kind of caveat that. Um, but like, um, f- felt really good to to bounce these blobs around. You separate them, you put them together. There's a nice reference to it early on in um, the Astro's. Uh, what's it called? The Astro's Playroom. Playroom? Yeah, yeah, the PS5 uh, demo that comes with the with the console. And uh, yeah, I re- just really loved it. And so yeah, I, I picked up the full game, and I yeah, I, it was pr- one of the few PSP games I really loved. Um, Do you ever play it? I think I did. I, it wasn't a. Re- oh no, I always get it confused with uh, Patapon. Same developer, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was like a yellow ball that ate other balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had to find the other balls around the level. A lot of them were hidden. Two D platformer. You tilt. You're not really. You're, you, you're controlling the environment, not the um, the oh, character. Oh, that's it. Yeah, I don't think I played it sort of seriously, but I remember people being being into it. Yeah, I just I, I re- just really enjoyed it for the time. I have a good memory of like sitting in my college library at the time and downloading that demo and playing it and just being like, wow, this is actually something really cool on the PSP. Mm. Uh, and then uh, yeah, I, I did. I did, I did like the PSP. It just took quite a few years to get going. It had a really good God of War game eventually. Uh, a couple of the third-person shooters weren't so bad. Was that um, the Ready at Dawn one? Yeah, they had two Ready at Dawn ones. Um, Chains of Olympus and 
uh, Ghost of Sparta, I think. I think I played the second one, and it was good. Yeah, yeah, really impressive for the time. Um, yeah. I think they'd, like, overclocked the PSP to, so it could run it or something. But definitely, um, yeah, one of the few really, really good, here's a PlayStation experience on a handheld. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Loco Roco kind of sums up my relationship with the PSP, but it is the highest PSP game on my list. So, um, oh, okay. Yeah, uh, so what's, uh, what's your number seven, Matthew? My number seven is Wii Sports. Wow, another one not on my list. Wow, of course. Yeah. Look at this total divergence. It's yeah, impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we we talked about this a bit on the the, the PS5 Xbox Series X episode. I mean, I love a pack in. Uh, this was the ultimate pack in. Arguably, I think there are a large portion of Wii owners who think the Wii is a machine that only does Wii Sports. <laughs> um, I don't think a lot of people who bought it understood what a console was that you had to buy other games for it. I mean, the numbers of the games sold would speak to that. Mm. Um, the gulf between the best sellers and, and, and the units sold. Um, yeah, it was it was just such a sort of polished thing. It's not massively deep. It's not massively complicated. I know there's there's some argument over how deep it is and some people will say that there's sort of a lot of sort of subtleties to it but you know based on what we now know about what's in the Wii remote which is not a whole lot it's it's not really about that you know it's kind of if you move your hand at the right time you'll probably win um i i'm only really really into Wii tennis and Wii bowling of of the five hmm. um golf's okay i guess i feel like people those are the two people really remember yeah yeah, Particularly we the ba- and the base. Yeah, the bo- I think some people remember the boxing just because it used the nunchuck as well. Also, weirdly, the generic me who you you uh, smashed living daylights out of looks just like um, Justin Lee Collins. Oh, okay. Um, like, yeah, that's a very two thousand and six reference. Yeah, there are a lot of a lot of Justin Lee Collins jokes in Endgamer, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, but Wii Sports was great. Taking it home, you know, I was obviously really excited about the job. You know, being on the magazine, I bought the Wii for Christmas, um, and taking it home and just seeing my family actually be into it and not everyone give it a go, just like in the adverts, um, was nice. It was a, you know, it was like, oh yeah, mission success. This has done what it set out to do. But also, it's got some absolutely banging music in it, hmm. like really you know music that wouldn't be out of place as like this is the theme of actual baseball or you know the olympics opening tunes just really like yeah you're gonna win um yeah and i I, you know it is tied in with like me being excited about the job and playing this with you know friends on the mag who who i'd made and and you know and, and all that um but it is just undeniably like the game that defined that console i mean you know, you whenever I see it in there's this. You know, you watch like you you saw it in a lot of films, and maybe it dates them a bit. But you know, when you just see people casually playing a bit of wee tennis in a scene in a film or something, I always think, oh yeah, it seems so much more sort of natural than than other games. You know, it really did feel like a a big shift had been had been made, and and it was a good thing. I, I really really rate wee sports. Yeah, I, I think that um, obviously people are very torn on the legacy of the Wii. And I actually feel like I listened back to our uh, first episode talking about it. I think I was a bit too harsh on it as well. But I think the um, the result of the Wii being so popular is it kind of, I think it's, it's sort of helped the Switch now in a lot of ways where people are returning to Nintendo with a very, like a pre-existing relationship with 
the kind of hardware and types of games and the experiences. Yeah. Um, and even though there isn't really anything like Wii Sports on the um, Switch these days, I'll, uh, well, I don't know, maybe you can speak to that. There's I a couple know. of things it a bit is, like it. It is odd how Nintendo have kind of basically abandoned hmm. that whole kind of chunk of their, their library, you know, the touch generation stuff. Like, I know that there's a brain training on the Switch, but I, I don't know if, like, you know, they brought all these things, they brought the Wii Sports jazzed up to the Wii U and they just made no impact whatsoever. Like, yeah. I think Bandai Namco ported them and they had like Wii Motion Plus, so they were slightly more advanced than their base versions. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It, it just there, There's nothing really like that on, on, um, on the Switch. You know, they had those early games which used the kind of Joy-Cons and like that they were played almost without the TV. They used the rumble and the sounds and stuff. The... Uh, is it one two switch? Yeah, yeah. I think it's called, which yeah. is probably the closest thing to it. Um, you know, maybe like I don't know, like they're just there, they realise their natural strengths or, or like their old favourites are just so re energized that they don't need to dip into that. Um it's it's kind of a weird thing. So much of that era of Nintendo thinking around the DS and Wii was like masterminded by Iwata mm. and with him um now having passed away. It's, you know, you just don't hear much about Nintendo. They don't talk as openly about their philosophy and, and what they're actually trying to do. You know, they haven't got a sort of an Awata figure who is as open. You know, they've got people who step in and can talk about specific games. But, you know, I, I find it much harder to pin down what their philosophy is these days, mm. other than just... You know, they've just made a console and great games that people really like, which seems pretty basic, but it seems to have worked. Um yeah, so yeah, I don't know. I just I, maybe maybe we just this era is interesting because it was so different and so much was known about it, and there was so much sort of it was such a success that you know everyone was asking Nintendo their secret, and they were constantly talking about it about their sort of various business strategies and things. Yeah, it's at a really weird time. I mean, it was a weird time to be making a magazine. I'd much rather have been making a magazine about the Switch. Like, mm. this is a console you can make a great games mag about. Um, the Wii was almost sort of, you know, counter to the kind of the hardcore Nintendo fan in many ways. And so it made our mag kind of, you had to be a bit more experimental to kind of deal with that. What was the uh, the vibe like on the team then? Was it, Were people actually excited about the Switch on Endgamer at the time. Uh, Sorry, not the Switch, the really Wii. Very, Greener was like, who's the editor, was super into it. I was really into it just because, you know, it had, like, when you had to play everything on a console, you find out all its weird niches and you realise that they do exist and mm. people may just go, oh, it's the Wii Sports the machine, but you know all the other games that are there. Um, I think the, I think Kitsy was, uh, he was into it, but he was, like, big into the 360 you know, he was like super into the 360. I think he used to write a section of the mag called Mean. I think it was called Meanwhile, which was a, which was a two page spread about everything that was happening on other consoles. Right, right. And I used to think like that was <laughs> like where his like most excited writing was. A cry for help. Just... <laughs> no, not at all. Like he still like when they came along. You know, he wrote like really amazing stuff about the big Nintendo games. He was really into like Xenoblade. I remember that and. And, but, you know, there was definite, like, the vibe in the office, maybe, was so, like, 360-centric mm. that basically, you know, like I said, everyone on the PlayStation mags were playing on the 360, 
you know, we all had 360s. We were playing that, and, you know, socially, 360 was the place. But obviously, you know, I, I really liked the games on the Wii. I mean, it wasn't like we felt we were lumbered with a dud console, but you were definitely in a very different place, and you never really forgot that. Mm. Um, but then, you know, when the, we had the Wii U, it was like, oh, man, what I'd give for the <laughs> for the Wii era again, because... <laughs> That was like true laughing stock in the office. I mean, they were wrong about it in many ways, but you know, it's yeah, a tricky, a tricky, a tricky thing. Did the DS being good at the time help temper the fact that the Wii was kind of hard to grasp? Did, I think there are just some people who are, I think there are some people who are like handheld minded and open to what those kind of games and what that console can offer, mm. and then there are people who want Gears of War. Yeah, yeah. and there's not a lot of crossover there. I don't think. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like I had quite eclectic tastes by being on Nintendo. You know, I love the 360, but also love the Wii. I love the DS, absolutely fantastic machine. But it, what it was trying to succeed on was so different. Mm. And I don't necessarily think you'd... Um, yeah, it wasn't the place for, like, big graphical excitement. Well, that's why we made mistakes like we were talking about on the reviews episode with like Resident Evil Revelations on 3DS where you were like, "Oh yeah, this feels like a big proper proper console game." Mm. And you need overscore it and it actually didn't have the spirit of a handheld game that made the best DS games. Mm. Um yeah, so I, you know, I I feel lucky I got to cover this stuff. Yeah, I, I agree with you actually. Like I, people weren't as energized by the um, the handhelds; they were the home consoles. This this extended to Imagine as well, where the 360 was very dominant. Uh, Xbox Live, you can't underestimate just what a great thing Xbox Live was in oh, terms yeah. of the you know the making the friend system and matchmaking and all that stuff, and obviously the quality of the games. Um, a lot of which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in the next yeah. uh, year that we cover. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just it was just. Oh, just yeah everyone it was the center of the universe for I, everyone. I, I still think of a lot of my old colleagues as their gamer tags <laughs> like i remember back in the day uh andy hartup was shark in a jar because uh, he had a shark in a jar on his desk yeah. <laughs> and there are other gamer tags which i can't repeat <laughs> yeah 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 there's a few a few yeah actually when you um when i turn on my xbox one now it's like a graveyard of former <laughs> colleagues from imagine because yeah. There are people don't seem to uh, you know consistently use Xbox as often as their PS4s. With PS4 is obviously very like uh, active, so I'm always seeing people I know on there. But yeah, it is like this is what I thought it would be acceptable to call myself <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in 2006. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so uh, my number seven, Matthew. Um, I wonder if this will be on your list. It's Tetris DS. It isn't. Oh really? Wow. Okay. So did you play this at the time? I didn't, no. Wow, okay, so I really, I mean, I have not played Tetris Effect, which, uh, or Tetris Effect Connected. Everyone tells me this is a phenomenal version of Tetris uh, for what it does in terms of, um, you know, bringing kind of like music and visuals into it in an amazing way. But this was a Nintendo-designed DS version of uh, Tetris mm. that was uh, full-color, um, had loads of great Nintendo-themed mini-games, uh, like a, a Metroid theme, like a Donkey Kong theme, uh, just a, a really like a comprehensive version of Tetris, and yeah, like it had like a battle Tetris mode, and um, yeah, you know, obviously the basic uh, endless play mode. Um, they did make it a bit easier because you could save a block, which obviously, you know, that's controversial. You don't have to use it, I suppose, if you want to, you know, yeah. play it pure like the Game Boy version. But 
No, this was a really just probably the DS game I played more than any other just by default. It was a really good. Okay, I'm traveling. Uh, ten minutes. I've got ten minutes on the on the train. I'll just play Tetris DS. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It looked beautiful, and I think the personally, I think the best part about it were they had these touch screen um, Tetris kind of like uh, they're kind of almost like challenge rooms, I guess, where. You had a screen of blocks you could move around, and then it had to drop correctly to to eliminate every line on the screen. And there were right, about right. I think there were about fifty of them in the DS version, and those were just a, a really good use of that touch screen on the DS. Mm. Um, and I, I I love that game. I thought it was um, I thought it was great. Uh, how come it kind of passed you by at the time? Well, You're just not I'm really. Just, I'm not really a Tetris guy. Well, I say I'm not. I, I wasn't ever really a Tetris guy. You know, I can appreciate what the game's you know art is, but I am terrible at it. It really stresses me out. I don't like the pressure of of that stack building up. I I just haven't got the dexterity, mental or physical, with my fingers to actually play it. Um, that said, this year, like one of my favourite games of this year is Tetris Effect Connected because mm. uh, it felt like the first Tetris game I truly connected with. That isn't a pun; that's just a, a fact. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, like just there are so many accessibility features now, and just the style of it really, really won me over and got me over that that hump of the kind of panic and and associating with the old Game Boy game, which used to stress me out as a kid. Um, so yeah, it's purely like. I know it's I know it's a beloved version of Tetris. It's just I I didn't love Tetris at the time. Mm. So yeah, so for me, it just kind of really summed up what the the DS was about in terms of Nintendo being at the peak of its powers and yeah. making all these great versions of kind of um, you know of old Nintendo classics. They did. They were very good at games which had. You know, the central game was awesome, and then it was surrounded by, like, a, a surprisingly good spread of, like, mini-games. Yeah. Uh, I think New Super Mario Brothers uh, DS, the first one, had a really great suite of, like, 50 party, like, almost like Mario Party mini-games, mm. um, which were almost better than the game, I think. Like, you could play it local... Uh, local multiplayer and it had that download play so you only needed one copy so if you had a friend you could just jump into this just amazing spread of mini games Mm. um oh yeah it was good i think that was 06 in the uk did that make your list it didn't make my list yeah see i thought it was a really nice looking game at the time but i I didn't i didn't love it i must admit Um, yeah i yeah i kind of i've sort of no, it sounds pretentious to say I've moved beyond 2D Mario, uh, but uh, I'm just sort of a, I'm a bit of a 3D Mario bus person these days. Uh, at some point, it just you know it just uh, it can just there are limitations to it. Um, well, people might not agree with that, but that's well, we personally may, maybe that one or one or two will make it into future lists. Okay, cool. All right, so what's your number six? Uh, my number six is Trauma Center Second Opinion. Nice. Okay. Uh, this was this came out in America, so. Uh, this year it was a launch it was a Wii launch game in America it didn't come out until a year later in the UK we did import it though because Endgamer was big into import reviews Mm. Um, I hadn't played Trauma Center on the DS much I tried it a little bit when I joined the team because they had all these games to hand Um, Trauma Center is a arcade surgery game it isn't a you know isn't like surgery simulator it's not like a madcap physics thing neither is it like a really serious surgery simulator it's a you know a game you have quite abstract visions of of body cavities they're all kind of neon lumps they're quite hard to identify as organs i'd say and you know it's almost almost like a kind of a 
sort of shoot them up vibe in, in practice because, you know, there are certain wounds that have to be dealt with certain weapons, which are your surgical tools, certain processes. You're just trying to remember the sequences, fire them off and sort of control things. Actually, shoot them up's the wrong example. It's more like a, I guess it's more like a sort of a time strategy element to hmm. it. Um so like you're like well if I you know this wound I can sew it up but I'll have to like uh, put like a plaster over it and then put the healing gel but maybe I'll do that second maybe I'll stitch everything first then slap everything down um, on the DS this was a natural fit because it had the stylus and you could tap the things what I loved on the Wii was it was a Wii pointer game which was really the strength of the Wii I think beyond the motion controls I think was the pointer stuff and and my favorite Wii games were the ones which made use of the pointer for that kind of precision. Mm. Um, and you had all the surgical tools on the nunchuck. So it really felt like you were focusing all your like mental power on the, on the remote in your hand and the nunchuck was just making everything else really, really fast. It's a brutally difficult game. I mean, you know, this is, it's a high score challenge. I would scrape through with like the lowest ranking on level after level. I die all the time. There were levels where you just had to be so fast and like perfect with like your stitching and making sure you did everything in the right order. Um, the story was anime as hell. It's made by Atlas, and like all Atlas games, you know the the character art could be Persona character art. It's the same kind of character artists, mm. so it's got that really cool kind of anime look to it. Um, but it's it's all about this like evil virus called guilt which kind of sort of mutates in the body. So as the story went on, it was all about, like, wounds that just when you're on top of them, they turn into, like, even worse versions of themselves. That's and very Persona, actually. I, it, yeah. was so, it was so stressful. Um, you know, well, that's it. Was, it's really melodramatic. It's loads of people crying, like, Doctor, I'm dying of guilt! And all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. Huh? Um, all the characters were named after, Scrubs, like... Scrubs, right? Huh? Was it Scrubs? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Scrubs and Grey's Anatomy, I think. Right, yeah. They were all kind of mixed and matched from famous TV doctors. Um, it's got great style. It's not the best in the series. That came much later with Trauma Team, um, which added a lot more medical disciplines to it. But as a like a weird, only on Wii kind of, um, and DS, uh, sort of exercise with a, a real sort of sense of character to it and uh, a very different kind of arcade energy. I really, really rated Trauma Center. Well, it's, I remember that first DS one being a surprise hit. Um, I think it was just right at that time where people were just up for this different kind of software on these Nintendo platforms. Um, also, I love the idea of someone selling a game with the subtitle Second Opinion. Uh, just the idea, this will get people excited. Second Opinion. Like, <laughs> brilliant. Nailed it. I think, the, I think it was originally called Trauma Center Under a Knife on DS. Yeah, that's a, um, a better name, but hey, you know. Yeah, it was Second Opinion. Yeah, because then there was the one which they added. Co- there was another, there was like a sequel which added co op. Third uh, Opinion. Yeah, and they gave I remember Nintendo, when it finally came out in the UK, they did these really cool promotional t-shirts that were black and then they had like a white stethoscope on them Mm. um which i was very very taken with and wore it until the white stethoscope rubbed off and it was just a black (laughs) t-shirt uh (laughs) it's a great story yeah it's one of my killer anecdotes (laughs) i uh i I wonder what happened to that series and when did that um when did the last one come out trauma team never came out in the uk Ah. uh it was easily the best it felt like they threw a lot at it and it was 
basically five games in, like you know the, the traditional trauma center gameplay was one of five disciplines mm. and you know one of them was like you were a basically doctor house doing diagnosis and it was like a text adventure ah. um and then there was one which was about like an emergency responder and it was kind of like very quick it was all about like prioritizing the right person body to kind of go to first and then there was another one which was just about sticking cameras up people's asses. <laughs> It was literally, like, our whole storyline was just, like, feeding a camera through guts. <laughs> um, so maybe that explains why it is no longer successful. Because uh, one-fifth of that cam- game was ass cam. <laughs> did that... Uh, so what console did that come out of? Was that Wii U game? That was still a, no, it was a okay. Wii game. Uh, did it come out in North America? It came out in North America, yeah. Trauma oh. Team, really, really underrated. I really want to play it now. Wow. Yeah, it's gra- it is great. We're going to send the uh, value of copies skyrocketing on their eBay, <laughs> yeah. I think. Uh, also, it doesn't get more fucking 2006 ass than like a, a Scrubs reference. Jesus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Um, okay, so my number six. I'm certain this has got to be on your list, right? Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. Is it higher on your list? That is higher on my list. Okay, in which case we'll return to that later. So what's your number six, Matthew? Uh, my number five. Sorry, yes, number five. My yes. number five is Bully. Ah, yeah, that's higher on my list. Oh, so we're back to you. Yes, we are. Um, yes, uh, so... Uh, your number five. My number five is Devil May Cry 3 Special Edition. Oh, no, I, that isn't on my list. Oh, thank God. I thought we were just going to keep doing that till we got to the end of the... Uh... <laughs> No, uh, so, um, yeah, Devil May Cry 3, I didn't play the original Devil May Cry 3, uh, which released, I think, a year earlier, and, um, yeah, it was it was well-received, but it was very hard, and then this new version came out, added uh, Virgil, um, uh, Dante's brother and the main antagonist of this game as a playable character, and uh, also added a whole suite of difficulty settings, which was very welcome. Um, I played the first Devil May Cry and rented the second, the second was very bad. Uh, <laughs> it was like nefa- like a famously shit the bed, right? Yeah, it was made by a different developer and released I think a year later. And I don't think um, the original team had anything to do with it. And so, you know, it's a bit where a monkey threw a bus at you. <laughs> yeah, the, the creature designs got really, really strange, and <laughs> yeah. you were kind of in a city, and it just didn't have the same vibe at all. And Dante was much moodier. Um, whereas the third one uh, starts with a very good cutscene where uh, Dante is in his I, I know I don't know what his business is his business is called Devil May Cry <laughs> he sits in behind a desk right and takes phone calls and then just goes out and beats up demons and I don't know who pays him I don't know how that business like if he secured investment I thought it was like a Ghostbusters deal I mean I, I guess so? a receptionist who's like. Devil May Cry, and then Devil May you, Cry. You got, and then it's like, oh, someone's got a werewolf. You've got to go and kill in a castle. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's kind of how the first game starts. But then, like, is he in the yellow pages? I mean, and <laughs> under what? How long? Who pays him at the end of it? Because that that for, a job in the first game takes a long time. And then, and and in this one too, he he doesn't seem to. This one is set before the first one, and he hasn't set up his business yet. But right. his brother has kind of leveled the city, and he has to go beat him up. And so I've never quite understood the core business element of what Dante's going for. Do you think that's what the ranking is at the end of the fight? Do you think it's some <laughs> unseen employer? 
He's going like, Maybe it's that was credit. D-grade, I'm only giving you 10 quid for that. It might be his credit rating or something. Oh, that was like SSSS, <laughs> so that means you get a £1,000 because you, you killed that snake in a really sexy way, and I liked it. Oh, dear. Uh, so I, I bought this edition on PS2 for like 12 quid from Play.com, which again makes this very 2006. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I really, really got into it. That first one's good, but this was this really kind of solidified... Uh, just the it added the different styles of combat so you had like royal guard and trickster and four different styles um that you could uh, use to beat up enemies and uh, it was just really replayable i i just played it over and over again when i was um, mm. when i was uh, this year and uh yeah I, I just really loved it. it had a really fun tone i mean uh, people just uh, people are really kind of dismissive of um games that have like a really kind of silly script but i think that sometimes that can just be purely entertaining and it really works in this game's favor it's just dante's just a fun character to be around and he's a really i just really love that character design i think it's a really a really striking bit of design i got the impression that a lot of the positive reviews for devil may cry 5 were kind of reacting to it being a bit more like 3 yeah so four i'm i'm I reviewed four as a four later on, and it's um, it added a different uh, playable character and um, uh, Nero, and it's it's um, has a lot of repeated environments, and definitely felt like they were struggling to make it kind of thrive in HD. Felt yeah, like. and so yeah, five obviously added um, another playable character, and uh, yeah, very well received. Um, kind of called a, a return to form. So I think you're right. Yeah, this this is the one where Camille didn't work on this one, but it really felt like it. It kind of pushed what they had in one further one was set in this kind of gothic castle but then like the kind of rock music would kick in and you start juggling enemies and yeah. the whole thing with Devil May Cry is you know you switch between sword and guns and movement you try not to get hit and you form these great combos and yeah three was just a, a the best version of it until Bayonetta basically right yeah. right so that was that was what I did in uh, 2006. I just played that's that. A great, that's a great way to spend 2006. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, so what's your number four, Matthew? My number four is Hitman Blood Money. Ah, not on my list because I didn't play it like until years later. Um, but t- talk me through it. Yeah, so this was... Uh, I feel Hit- Hitman Blood Money's reputation has improved over the years. I feel like it's now a bit of a cult... Not a cult favourite, but like people who have played a lot of the Hitman games will come back to it. It certainly features very highly in best hitman levels a lot of them come from blood money um at the time i had didn't have much of a relationship with hitman like i'd played hitman one on pc and thought it was so rank uh like it's a game with a brilliant pitch but that uh that hitman one is not a good game at all no. like uh, I think you know everyone will be probably on board with that. You know, it becomes what it was sort of meant to be in Hitman Two, um, which I only played a little bit of, and then it was always just a game in the back of my head of oh, the kind of bald assassin game. But I loved the idea of an assassin game because you know I was the, probably the right a- 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 age for that kind of edgy kind of bullshit. Uh, you know, the idea of just being going around sort of perfectly sniping out people and stuff was you know kind of ticked ticked a lot of boxes mm. um this one i think added i just think that the 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 concepts behind some of the levels and the kind of freedom of approach really opened up in a way which uh you know they take to that they take to the kind of the, the best extreme in hitman one and two you know in, in 2006 uh, 2016 uh, 
was it 2016? Yes. Um, This almost, this of all the other games, this feels the closest to those to me in terms of like there are spaces where you can do a lot more experimental stuff. I mean, that you know, the, some of the famous examples is there's the opera level, curtains down, uh, where you can replace the prop gun with the real gun so the actor shoots each other on the stage, or you can snipe him when the actor shoots the fake gun so no one realises the bullet came from you and not that gun. Things like that. It just felt very open. Uh, it has the legendary A New Life, uh, mm. which is the suburban level, which is... Like it feels like Hitman Two's uh, Whittleton Creek is like a very much a kind yes. of homage to that. Definitely, yeah. Definitely. Um, and it's just such a like mundane environment, and and just it, that to me is like the heart of that game of kind of you know you are in this very recognisable space, and you've got to do something really awful there. How do you do it? It's a fantastic kind of combat puzzle. Mechanically, it's a bit shaky, like. For my money, like Hitman 1 and 2, the new ones, are the best of the series just because it finally feels like mechanically as tight as it needs to be. It always felt a bit vague. Um, Weirdly, I think some of that comes from some of the decisions they made in Absolution, which, while not a great game, does mechanically tighten it up. And then they they take that into Hitman 1 and 2. But this, in terms of like style and tone, I think is really like a sweet spot for the series. it just just a, a lot of affection for it. It did some other sort of semi-interesting things with uh, in your single-player playthrough. Um, you had a sort of notoriety that built through the game. So, you know, if you were kind of very messy in the levels or whatever, people might be a bit more suspicious in the next level. It's how I sort of remember it. It's been a while since I've played it. Um, I really liked that it presented your mission sort of ranking as a newspaper with a newspaper headline of like man is killed total mystery and it's like silent assassin or whatever um yeah just uh a really good little adventure i don't know why after this they decided to you know take such a a break and basically reinvent it as absolution this very sort of cinematic thing because i feel like going back and reading a lot of the words written about this game at the time there was a lot of affection for it and i felt like they are on the cusp of like a big breakthrough. Um, I think what it lacks and what Hitman, like one and two, really, or oh, and Absolution again, really nail is like a really nice progression and motivation system around the game to kind of actually explore those levels. There are tangible rewards for finding all the different kills, where in Blood Money there kind of wasn't. You were just left to your own devices, and that's true of a lot of games back then, but for my money, I love the structure of the new Hitman games, um, which is also another thing that they introduced in Absolution. So, yeah, kind of Absolution plus Blood Money equals Magic Hitman of today. Um, I just love this series. I own Interactive god tier studio in my book yeah. um yeah yeah i, I just I, i'm always uh concerned about the future of io interactive just just because like hitman didn't seem to do well enough that you know obviously square enix kind of like uh, severed ties with them and um this, yeah the series went off with them and it seemed like they're having a, a moment there <laughs> but um the other thing is that it's 10 years between this and hitman um 2016 like that's so long that they were they obviously they did the Kane and Lynch games. I know the second one has a kind of cult following. They weren't really for me tone wise, <laughs> no. um, very much of their time. Oh, so I think. horrible! <laughs> uh, 
Um, I appreciated stylistically what they were going for with that second one in terms of the presentation of it. But um, then they made Mini Ninjas as well. And it was kind of just like, when are you going to just make a good Hitman game? Yeah. And there were, that lasted for six years. And some people really liked Absolution. Um, it, I like bits of it. I'm, 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 I think it might feature in my games of the year for that year where we can chat about it. But Yeah. I agree with you that the structure of the new ones is just perfect. But definitely the kind of types of... Um, I did play a lot of Hitman 2, actually, the uh, original Hitman 2. Hmm. And um, that, I, I I remember the demo that came with um, official PlayStation magazine. It's that one where you're, I think it's the first level where the postman's arriving at that big mansion and you... The Italian one. Yes. And that yeah. is, it's a beautiful level. It was a beautiful level you for You could the hide time. your gun in the delivery boy's basket. And yeah, the basket of fruit. And then, but then obviously there are all these other different ways in. And that was such a great, it's all there. Like what Hitman yeah. is now, it's, it's all in there. And it's just, it just, yeah, it just this very slow period of progression until you get to these near perfect uh, modern games. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's it's cool and it's interesting. This game seemed to cast such a, such a shadow on the series. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it's is there also like a Vegas level in this one? Yeah, there's a Vegas level. Yeah, yeah. they're all are they well, not all America. There's a lot of American locations. Mm. Um, which which kind of makes it feel a bit closer to home, and some of the satire as well. Like I feel like they they get a better idea of like you know the kind of the, the people you're after. You you know the scenarios are a bit clearer. Your kind of motivations a bit clearer. Mm. Um, yeah, Going. it's quite funny. If you, <laughs> I was reading some like old list features for this, just to just to sort of remind myself and make sure there wasn't anything I was missing. And one of the wildest things, go back and read the games writing of 2006. Tonally, it is so different and it, so much of it wouldn't fly. I mean, there's a, there's a, Euro... <laughs> go back and find the Eurogamer readers top 50. I read this list. For 2006. Are you going to reference the opening paragraph and how it ends? No, I will remember it's cause the Hitman entry. So these were comments from readers that sites would print. Right. And the one for Hitman was just a reader. And over and over again, in capital letters, it said, I love strangling hookers. I love strangling hookers. And I was like, there is no fucking way anyone oh would print that and write that on a site in, in 2020. I think we'd agree that's a good thing. Uh, that well. is a good thing. But I, I like... The laddish tone of, like, even that, I couldn't, but I was like, wow, I have really, like, forgotten the tone of games writing just 14 years ago was so different. It's a, a big caveat, actually, that I, I, I feel like I should have mentioned in the first episode is that, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of enjoying this process of going through these memories, but they were, they were definitely, like, white, straight, male-dominated spaces. <laughs> they just were. Like, it was, it was a kind of sad reality of it. Um, but obviously that's kind of slowly changing. Sir, what's your number four? Animal Crossing Wild World on the DS. Is this in your list? This isn't. I didn't think it would be, because I, I don't think you're that big on Animal Crossing, are you? I'm not, no. No, so this was this was my Animal Crossing, basically. So this year, obviously, what, what I think everyone would agree is the best Animal Crossing game was released on uh, the Switch, uh, New Horizon, and um, it, it's... Uh, I played it for about 45 minutes uh, and I just realised that being stuck in a small location during a worldwide lockdown <laughs> was not for me this year. <laughs> so I may return to it at another point, but I also think it's a slight amount of 
I burned myself out on this Animal Crossing, which yeah. I had a lot of time on my hands, and I played it loads and loads. Um, and that was a, it was a really good DS version of Animal Crossing. And I think a, a, a really great example of when um, Nintendo makes a game that uh, strikes a chord with people outside of its core, you know, user base, mm. but also it it feels very Nintendo, like um, through and through, and it is actually like surprisingly hardcore um, yeah. when you dig down to it. Um, yeah, this looked beautiful on the DS, uh, and I just I was really taken with the the personality of it and the different. Uh, types of animals you meet i was sad it never had the gamecube's um unlockable arcade games where you could play nez games yeah, within yeah. the game um yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's such a it's such a weird one on the crossing because i am so envious of people who play it properly because mm. they form this amazing real-time relationship with a game and it is meaningful and that you are exciting about like the coming of seasons and people and that stuff can happen in that world that is so mundane in its in and of itself, but in the context of Animal Crossing, seems hugely important. Yeah. I wish I had the patience for it, but I mean, did you go like full in, like play every day, kind of? Yeah, there was one day where I mean, I didn't have a lot going on at the time. I think I basically played Animal Crossing in real time for the entire day. How? Can, uh, what is there to do? <laughs> I don't even really know. <laughs> um, once you've dug up your two fossils and you've um, you know you've shake it, shaken down all the trees to get some fruit and you can endlessly fish and sell fish um in animal crossing but yeah definitely i don't really know what i was doing with the time because this um this ds one's actually pretty feature light when you look back on it it doesn't have the same sort of like town customization they'd add with the um the 3ds one yeah and uh now it seems very elaborate the stuff you can do with it uh i must admit as well like i i kind of miss this time though of People just talked about Animal Crossing too much this year, and there were just images everywhere of it. They, I feel like they kind of the internet did its thing both in discourse and like guides, and they kind of strip mined it. And that isn't kind of what the game's for. No, you know, like in my head, it's something you dabble with for twenty minutes a day. But you had people who are kind of like, I've played, you know, a hundred hours of Animal Crossing in the last week, and you're like, I don't really know if it's intended for that. And then the week off, they're like, no, oh, it's boring now, and it's like. Yeah, because it's like a sedate light. You've basically come in and just sort of like bulldoze this rural wonderland into your sort of horrible kind of, you know, into a housing development. And that's it. You know, that's that's all there is to it now. That's You've exhausted it. Yeah, I, yeah. It's sort of... Um, I don't resent people for having their own way of dealing with this whole year. Oh, yeah, for and, sure. And it also Animal Crossing definitely... Um, I would say like a, a definitely more of a split in terms of the types of people who talk about it on social media, which is a great too in terms of how it resonates with people. Yeah. But um, yeah, just I didn't. I agree with you. I didn't. I didn't like. I don't like seeing screen grabs of any game constantly on Twitter <laughs> all day. Like I just never. I always have to mute people when a new animal, uh, a new uh, Assassin's Creed comes out, right. and people take screenshots of every single environment before I've had the time to go in there in the game yeah. and see it. And that's just a personal thing, but. Yeah, I didn't want to see all the. I don't want to see all the animals. I want to see who moves in and then who moves out and all that stuff. And yeah, but this this one really just it was just a perfect match. It was one of the um, two games I got with uh, my DS uh, Lite. The other one was Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, and that that was a great one-two punch of like I feel like I'm having new experiences on this yeah, yeah. beautiful handheld. Uh, just I was really just I was mega into the DS at the time. Um, so yeah, that's my number four. Uh, what's your number three, Matthew? My number three, and I don't think this is on your list, is Rhythm Tengoku. 
No, I've I've played um, some of the other entries in this series. Great, the but, Rhythm, um, Heaven, Paradise. Yes, yes, um, yeah. So this was the this is a Game Boy Advance. Uh, I think the last game Nintendo themselves made for Game Boy Advance came out in uh, August two thousand six on the GBA. So well into DS Lite time. Um, it's a rhythm game which I guess probably has the most similarities with something like WarioWare. Mm. In that it's very short, snappy rhythm exercises. It's not like a playing a song in a traditional sense. Each game is a comic scenario set to a very catchy tune, and there is a one or two button input that you just sort of tap along in certain ways. So in one of them, you're plucking hairs out of this very hairy onion's face, um, which is actually really sinister because they make this horrible sound whenever you pull them out. Um, there's another one where you're hitting like balls and then after you play uh, four or five of the games you get a remix which puts all five together into just like a mega track and even though this is GBA so the sound quality isn't amazing the music in this game is just absolutely phenomenal there's a there's a there's a one of the mini games called the Bonadori which is a um kind of geisha dance or not they're dancing girls at some festival and it's got this 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 tune and the reason i played this is because there are loads of references to this tune in in the early issues of endgamer before i joined uh which has the chorus don don pan pan don don pan pan um i i'm gonna really petition you sam to to put this as one of the pieces of music in this podcast oh well absolutely so that people can understand the power of this very catchy song uh, I think this is a game that, like, even more so than like Guitar Hero, which is quite complicated in itself, it just taps into the very basic human urge to tap your foot or a finger to a tune. Like, if you can tap to a rhythm, you can play this game. You can play it with your eyes closed because it's so tied to the music. Um, incredibly satisfying. The games are short, but they escalate brilliantly. I love the music. There's a really abstract art style to it. It doesn't really rely on any Nintendo heroes. There's no, like, Mario in it. It's very, very sort of strange and surreal. Um, Absolutely brilliant. There's a really funny Iwata Asks interview about one of the later Rhythm Heaven games where they talk about Rhythm Tengoku. And basically the guy who created it, who's called Kazuyoshi Asawa, um, seems quite ditzy by Nintendo standards. You know, they're like, oh, this is this weird thing he wanted to make. And none of us really thought it was going to be good. And even he didn't think it was going to be good. But we kind of made it anyway. And it was good. And Zert was happy. And uh, (laughs) there's this brilliant... (laughs) Iwata, I wrote this down because it made me laugh. Iwata says of Asawa... um, He says, uh, you must see him going down his own road and you can hear his spirit crying out, figure out which way I'm going from the aura that surrounds me, Um, which is just such a scathing, like, managerial assessment of someone of like, oh, here's this man who kind of, we just have to get this sort of general read of what you want to do from him. Um, I I just, it's a characterful game made by clearly characterful people. Um... I yeah I I uh, I absolutely love this. I love all the the the, the Rhythm Heaven games, Rhythm Paradise. I can never I love them, but I can never remember their damn names because they're called different things in different countries. Um, one of my favourite Nintendo gamer covers that I edited. I, I only edited like four, <laughs> but one was uh, was uh, Rhythm Paradise, and it was just a a beautiful beautiful technicoloured crazy splurge of of life. Um, 
yeah, this is a great series. Yeah, I think um, uh, WarioWare is a really good comparison point in terms of the how abstract some of the imagery seems, yeah. but also, also how inventive it is. And yeah, I, I actually played. Um, I've played a couple of these. I played the um, DS one they released. Um, is the GBA one the best in the series? Do you reckon? Uh no, they've probably got sort of slicker in the production. Fact, like just the, the the thing that lets it down probably is just the quality of the music. So there's like audio with like people singing, but it's recorded at a super low level for the for the GBA. Mm. Are some of them maybe in some of the later versions and they've been remastered and things? I there's... can't quite remember, but um, they're all great. I mean, play any of them. Like WarioWare, I think there's a kind of a gold uh, kind of like uh, compilation of them yeah, on 3DS. Yeah, puts everything together. Yeah, that's probably the one to get uh, yeah. these days. Um, but yeah, I actually I also played the arcade machine version of this. Oh really? Oh I've, no, I've always wanted to. I've never played it. Uh, it's at the. Um, uh, I hope it's still open um, after the pandemic. But it's um, the Las Vegas Arcade in Soho in London, uh, oh. which is a, a, an amazing arcade, the best arcade I've ever been to in the UK for sure. Um, has the drums game that I've forgotten the name of, but everyone oh, loves. Taiko no Tatsujin. That's thing. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously that's incredibly popular there. But yeah, also has uh, in the corner. Yeah, um, uh, I believe uh, I think it's like the original Japanese arcade cabinet of. Um, oh, fantastic! Where, yeah, it's, uh, it was, um, and, and me and my girlfriend played it, and we just had a we had the best time there. Uh, yeah, I really recommend tracking that down. Um, yeah, it's really nice to play that on a massive screen. You know, uh, yeah, it's cool. Um, what is your number three? My number three is Bully. Um, ah, finally. Canis Canum Edit, as it was called uh, in the UK, um, yeah. at the behest of uh, PlayStation, I believe. Um, but uh, yes, it was. Uh, this was a Rockstar open world game. Rockstar was obviously very well known at this point for making GTA and uh, other adult games. This moved uh, the GTA sort of format to uh, a school setting in the... Uh, the US, I think like a New England school, I believe it was, mm. uh, in a fictional town called Bullworth. Uh, you played as um, Jimmy Hopkins, is that his yeah. name? <laughs> I don't know, I should have researched this. I, <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah, played I this so. I've completed this game three times, but I had to ask. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of like a sort of a ne'er-do-well with a cart of gold, um, yeah. I would say. And uh, you kind of work your way up from the bottom to the top of the sort of social strata, navigating doing missions sort of these different um sort of uh factions who represented like um preppies and uh, sort of different type different archetypes you like get geeks and yeah like archetypes informed by both real life and also pop culture yeah. um but uh, just um I just I really I really love this game. It's also on your list, and uh, mm. I've I definitely have made one thousand pounds or more writing retrospectives on this oh. game <laughs> for different future publications and, ima- <laughs> and imagine publications. It's um, the goose that laid the golden egg. <laughs> yeah. So thank you uh, for that, Rockstar. I'm de- I'm definitely like you know I, I, the the return on investment for buying this game is quite high. Yeah. Um, I, I what I loved about this was it was Rockstar on a much smaller scale. It almost the, the town itself is tiny compared to everything else they built. Mm. It's still big enough that there's a sense of place and a sense of exploration. It really puts the focus on the missions. I actually think the missions here were like a bit more creative and characterful than maybe the missions in GTA had been up to that point. Yeah, um, GTA had always been slightly uneven games. I think like amazing, like real achievements for sure, but never quite like maybe the, the the missions themselves i don't think we're wherever quite as as good as the kind of promise of just driving around the open world but here everything kind of fit um i think it's tone given that there was a bit of a furore about um 
you know, it, 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 you know, endorsing bullying and being a thuggish thing. It's actually a much sweeter game. Um, and, it, but it still feels like part of the, like it could, this could be a place in the GTA verse, I think. Yeah. This feels like where GTA characters grow up and learn to be the shits that they are in those later games. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this game also features um, the main antagonist of the game is Gary, uh, a kind of sociopathic um, kid who you meet early on who just wants to turn the different factions at the school against each other. And it, he is a phenomenal rock star creation. Um, yeah. A really great, vivid character who I felt like I've met in real life a couple of times. And... Um, yeah, I, I agree with you about GTA being uneven. I think that's partly down to the GTA games were way too hard on the PS2. Yeah. They're way too difficult. And this is completely doable by comparison. A really, yeah, yeah. You, don't, you won't get stumped on a mission for too long. Nothing about it is that annoying. Uh, it feels like it was made for a younger audience on purpose as well. Like it, yeah. it feels like Rockstar kind of knew that G- teenagers couldn't play GTA, or at least they shouldn't have been. Yeah. And like, here's a game that you can play if you're that age group. It was like rated 15 in the UK. Um, I just loved it. And yeah, I I mean, people, people are kind of a bit harsh on Rockstar for focusing on GTA Online, I think, because obviously it's such a cash cow. But yeah, yeah. must admit, I would swap all those cars in GTA Online for a new bully game. I just would. And I doubt that financially that would make sense, but uh, Bully yeah. was just real special, and Ro- Rockstar was a really interesting uh, publisher at this point. It made it made Warriors the the year before, yeah, yeah. and um, the Manhunt uh, first Manhunt is a really good game. Second yeah. one, I think, is a bit a bit less acclaimed, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Then obviously leads to um, you know this really amazing generation to follow of uh, of games, but yeah, this is um, oh, just just great, and uh, just yeah, like you say, the town small. But you really remember the different districts of it, like the industrial district where there's all these kind of caravans and like there's um, a sense of class strata. Then the uh, preppies all live in this quite posh neighborhood where you do paper rounds. And then mm. there's the uh, fun fair. I think everyone remembers as well. Just mm. a really, a really great environment to walk around. I love Bully. So good. Great game. Yeah. So what's your number two, Matthew? My number two is The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Mm. Thought this would be on your list. It's not on mine, I'm afraid. I uh, I just I, I can I missed this one and bought the Wii U version, but I assumed this would. I actually thought this would be number one for you. Um, uh, no, this is this is. Uh, I I love this game. I think it's absolutely fantastic. It isn't my favourite Zelda, um, uh, by by some way. Uh, it's like I feel if I guess if you haven't played it, and I imagine a lot of people listening to this probably have. Um, it's a, a bit of like a kind of ocarina of time redux is kind of how it feels to me like it's it structurally it follows a lot of a lot of the the same kind of patterns as that game um tonally it's a way bleaker it's probably the bleakest Zelda there is um you know very kind of melancholic very sort of autumnal the color palette's very muted um it looked like someone at Nintendo had played a lot of um uh Ico and maybe Shadow of the Colossus it had that kind of slightly kind of bleached sort of look to it um it's a bit of a confusing game in terms of like it's got quite a lot of ideas in it you know there's there's this sort of dual world element to it where you're link and then you can turn into the wolf which i know is a classic zelda trope but it's a i'd say it's a a bit messier here i didn't really like the wolf stuff in this as much when i went back to it uh when they did the hd remake for wii u i kind of Reevaluated a bit and didn't like it quite as much as I did when I first played it. Um, what I will say and why why it's still like you know one of my favourite games of this particular year 
uh, was it's I think it's got the best dungeons in any Zelda game. Mm. Um, they are absolutely stunning constructions, so brilliantly built around the item you find in them, which again is a big Zelda thing. You know, each dungeon gives you the item you need to solve that dungeon. But the items here were really inventive and weird. A lot of them haven't been in other Zeldas or were quite unlike things. So there was like a spinner, which was like a gear that you sat on and you could basically real, you could uh, sort of skim up tracks on the wall. It was a bit like a Technic wheel. You could kind of spin it into these sort of grooves and it acted like a gear for kind of realigning dungeons and things. Um, you had the dual hook shots, which gave you this amazing dungeon in the sky, which was all kind of colla- uh, had giant holes in it. So you really had to sort of swing between space to space with these two hook shots. That was really cool. You had the uh, Dominion Rod for kind of bringing these statues to life and moving them about for the Temple of Time. Had a really spooky dungeon called the Snow uh, Snow Frost Peaks, I think. Um, Snow Peak Ruins, which was like a haunted house with this creepy yeti, and something like bad had gone down there, and you had to like work out what. So, like in those dungeons, I thought they were like that was just Nintendo. You know, they they they've, there's, they haven't done anything like that as good since dungeons wise, but the overworld stuff never quite did it for me. Um, felt a little bit shoehorned onto Wii with the sword controls. I like the pointer controls for arrows, but yeah, there, there, there's there's some stuff here which is a, a bit a bit flawed. Um, I think loads of people loved the idea of this very serious adult Zelda because there was the trailers for it. It really sold people on, you know. I guess I guess sort of, well, uh, this is probably a bit post Lord of the Rings, but it had that kind of epic like wow nintendo's really grown up after the wind waker um but i didn't necessarily feel that they, they had to um but you know it's a zelda team they make great games you know a lesser zelda which i think this maybe is is still better than like 99 percent of other games yeah. um and i love the equipment and the dungeons they really are they, they really are special i want to dig into this a little bit further because i feel like a lot of people listening um, who have come to the podcast from kind of like enjoying your work will definitely enjoy hearing you talk about uh, Nintendo games. So <laughs> um, I'm not joking. I'm, I'm being serious. Um, I'm curious. Um, so my memory of this Zelda uh, from like the outside looking in was obviously the reputation of uh, Wind Waker is very different now, but I remember the notorious Space World uh, realistic Zelda demo for GameCube didn't turn into anything. Yeah. Um, and there was a massive backlash, obviously, to uh, the Wind Waker's look, um, which has obviously faded over time. But uh, to what extent do you think this was an answer to Wind Waker by uh, Nintendo and to criticism of Wind Waker? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they've ever actively said that as much. Um, but it does feel like that. Like that That's probably the thing I was trying to think of, that, that Space World demo. This feels a lot more like that game. Mm. You know, it is the adult, it's a kind of human-sized link, you know, battling in quite a dark kind of epic environment. Um, I think it mistook kind of sad kind of decay, almost sort of like early Dark Soulsy kind of vibe for like adult 
Um, I think it's not as charming as other Zelda games. I think is 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 kind of the mistake it makes. So I guess yeah, I mean it is it's about as far as you can get from Wind Waker. You know, it's definitely going that other way. And for me, the important criticism I'd say that they answered isn't necessarily the art style, which I loved in Wind Waker, but the fact that Wind Waker doesn't really feel finished. Yeah, you know, it's a game that famously runs out of dungeons about halfway through and then just has a, a massive terrible fetch quest. You know, what is there is really good. But it doesn't feel complete. Well, this game is like stuffed. It's it's and there's like nine main dungeons, a couple of smaller dungeons. You know the 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 amount of busy work flip flopping between the two worlds in between. You know there is no way this this feels like you know half done or whatever. Um, so yeah, in in that way, it it, it feels like a a reaction both good, both good and bad. I'd say. Was there a massive endgame dungeon, um, either in the original or added to the Wii U version? Like a like a 100 level dungeon or something like that? I vaguely recall this for... Oh, if there was, I can't remember it. It might have been added for the Wii U one. I just remember reading about it and being like, wow, I can't imagine doing that. But um... They had... Wind Waker had the thing where you dropped down the levels and you just it was like floors of fighting. It wasn't like a dungeon per se. Yeah, it might have been that. Um yeah, sorry, I should have done more research there. No, so I just... I, well, I, I should remember my Zelda games better. <laughs> um, yeah, this one's good. It's very good. I tell you what, they released it at the right time. Like this was a very good December game. It's very autumnal, very wintry. It's very cold and sad. Mm. Um, yeah, weirdly sad Zelda. Like very, um, yeah, very strange. But then it also it sticks to the model of Ocarina so closely, you know. And it, and it, you know, you can almost put some of the dungeons side by side and say, well, this is that dungeon. This is the this is the Twilight Princess version of that dungeon or whatever. Mm. Um, more closely they can with other other Zeldas. Um, and they did improve it, you know, they, in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, I played this in really weird circumstances because I got the Wii and I ended up house-sitting for the deputy art editor on Endgamer because at the time uh, I hadn't got my own f- flat or room yet in Bath. I was living in a and b and she was like, well, we're going away. Do you want to come and stay and, like, look after our flat for, for a week? Because they had rats, and they're like, do you want to feed our... Not not wild, in cage, deliberate. They had deliberate rats, <laughs> and they were like, do you want to come and, like, feed our rats? And I was like, great, yes, you've got a TV. I'll sit there, and I play, I'll just play Twilight Princess in your nice, warm flat, and I'll have to have a proper shower, and I won't have to have a cooked breakfast with tourists every morning, which you do in a b and <laughs> Um, such a quintessential uh, staff writer experience like, yeah. yeah but uh, so i remember playing it in this quite cold flax so i couldn't work out how her heating works so it was extra wintry and the game's full of mysteries her flat was full of mysteries so i kept finding rat poo in the middle of the living room and i was like are they getting out like what's happening here this isn't right like and it was really troubling me because i didn't want to do it wrong because i was trying to like friend everyone in gamer i didn't want to be seen to be kind of a chaotic person um i was really really worried about this and then she got back and told me that her rats had the disgusting habit of putting their asses against the bars and projectile shitting across the room <laughs> oh wow I like so saying... there you go i bet you didn't expect the anecdote to go that way <laughs> <laughs> i think you might have told me that before but um yeah uh, but yeah so that's my that's so whatever thoughts i share on twilight princess 
see them through that lens. I like that you couldn't remember about the dungeon I asked about, but the rat shitting is something that stays well, that, in the memory. That really forever. stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember thinking, like, that is not right. That is odd. Did you ever? This is a really like trivia question, but I believe the GameCube version and the Wii version. The Wii version was flipped, right, to make yeah, it work. He, yeah, he's uh, he's left-handed. Yeah, Link is left-handed, but he's right-handed on Wii. Yeah, and so I um I the GameCube version sold. Uh, out quite quickly and then became very hard to get hold of. And I wonder yeah, if you I, ever played the GameCube one. Yeah, I've never played the GameCube one. I don't think I've even seen a copy of it. Mm. Um, I imagine it, yeah, it would be a real kind of collector's item. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It'd probably be a better fit in a way for GameCube. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I better hold on to my uh, Wii U copy of Breath of the Wild in case uh, <laughs> yeah. well, it skyrockets. I think more people played that on Wii U than played Twilight Princess on on GameCube. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I oh, know. Thank you for um, for sharing that. Uh, some thoughts. Yeah, I imagine you know, not to get too ahead of ourselves, we'll probably do a Zelda episode at some point. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, especially uh, with the anniversary coming up next year, and probably another Mario uh, 3D All Star style compilation. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah. Uh, right. What is your number two? My number two, Matthew, is Shadow of the Colossus. Ah, this is not on my list. Yes, so this did release in 2005 in the US, um, but then released in uh, Europe in uh, March 2006. Uh, My friend Andrew at the time bought a PS2 copy uh, and lent it to me, and I was very aware, I'd never actually finished um, Ico or Eco at the time, uh, but I was very... I loved what I played of it, but it became very hard to get hold of in the UK. There was was only like 50,000 copies printed in Europe, I think, and... By this point, copies were more than £60, and I had no money, so mm. I was never going to play it. And when they brought this out, they um, they released um, Ico, uh, re-released Ico for 20 quid on PS2, and they released this, so I, I, I played both at the time. And um, yeah, Shadow of the Colossus, uh, very, it's been talked about over and over again. I don't have anything that fresh to say about it. It's a game where you you uh, you know you, you are trying to um, you have it's very ambiguous, but you're you carry the body of this woman who's kind of like unconscious into this mysterious land where there are these creatures, and you, on behalf of some kind of old god or demon, are are slaying all of these kind of monsters that roam this um, amazing uh, empty valley, and uh, you're using their power for some kind of nefarious means to save this um, this woman, and. Um, yeah, it was. It's it's been discussed too much, really, but the it really was an amazing PS2 experience to see those monsters on screen. Like the way mm. they looked and sounded was unbelievable. Um, the very clever thing they did with the environments—they're very empty, but um, how it how I think the game makes the world work is you have these kind of distant images of all of the kind of mountains and trees you're seeing in the distance, and then when you get closer they turn into 3d objects so you really it really you don't really see the limitations of the ps2 other than the frame rate Mm. when a monster like smashes the ground and then it like it it judders because it's ancient hardware um you know but it was uh it just it looked amazing for the time and some of the creature designs in it were just so memorable and um a few of the uh encounters just became incredibly like they they just um, you would think you knew what the game was and then there'd be a creature that flew and you had to work out how to grab yeah, onto its yeah. wing and um, then there'd be another one that would bury itself into a, the desert and you realize oh I have to run on the horse and get it to chase me then hit it in the eye and that's when its um, weak spots are vulnerable and just a really inventive game and 
I think um, there are somehow there are only three games by that kind of, and I, I guess like that vague association of people who um, made Ico, Shadow Colossus, and um, the Last Guardian. Ueda, is that his name? Ueda, yeah, Fumito Ueda, and um, yeah, just uh, it's a shame really that, that that's all there is to show for all of those years. Um, but yeah. they're making a game with Epic Games now, I believe. Um, uh, Ueda and um, whoever, whichever his studio. Do you think is. they'll start putting the Colossuses in Fortnite? <laughs> And it'll be these like sad, majestic winged beasts with like horrible teenagers dabbing on its back <laughs> yeah, while just, that majestic soundtrack plays. Yeah, just like, uh, you know, John Wick uh, sort of like skin landing on it and shooting one of the things. Well, yeah, I know a concert by, I don't know, I actually don't know who would be in a Fortnite concert. Master Chief driving his warthog up the back of that thing from The Last Guardian. Yeah, and then Galactus just punches it in the face. <laughs> Just like, yeah, it'd be a real rich use of that iconography. Uh, yeah, um, just a, yeah, just a fantastic game. Just a real great end of the generation PS2 game. Just, yeah. Uh, just yeah, as good as everyone says it is, even though it's been Sc- talked about. Very, too much. I found it to be very scary. Really? Did you play like, it at the time? Uh, no, maybe a, a couple of years after or something. But I found like the the approach, like how empty it is, and then suddenly the screen is full of like. Some giant, they are giant. It's a game that captures scale in a way that very few games have. Yeah, and they are like you, you just look at them and think, Oh Christ, what am I gonna do? You know, here, and the tone of it is so bleak and sort of sad. Yeah, there are a few, there are a few really scary ones. This, the underwater one is pretty scary. The idea of something swimming beneath you that's gigantic and you can mm. only get glimpses of it that's really scary. Um, and there's a couple later on that are just, yeah, in some quite oppressive environments and um seeing eyes in the dark and stuff it can be yeah definitely i definitely yeah you're right it's definitely scary in places um i had some really cool cut uh creatures as well that live on in kind of like um small bits of like i know for mitsu screenshots and stuff yeah. that, but they, they they paint a really they just make you th- there were just originally a lot more of them in the game and yeah there's um a real kind of um scene of people digging into the lost content for this game uh, which i think Eurogamer did a really good article on a few years ago uh, oh, i kind of feel bad for not putting it on my list now because it's like shadow of the colossus yep not as good as tomb raider legends <laughs> But these are like personal favourites, yes. that's the thing. Which of these games will we be talking about in <laughs> 10 years' time? Yeah. <laughs> uh. oh, whoops. <laughs> I think I associate it with just later. I don't know why. Oh, I think it's because there was a very nice um, re-release of it on um, PS3 as well. So right. a lot of people played it and uh, Ico then. Um, all right then, Matthew, what's your number one? My number one is, well, as, as hinted at earlier, it is Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a real score with the score with the heart, not the head. Um, I think as a game, this uh, lawyer adventure game is solid enough as a, as an actual like adventure game. You know, the the going around talking to people, collecting clues, and then in court scenes, you use those clues to try and find inconsistencies in, in testimonies. It's basically the loop of the whole game. Very very linear, you know, visual novel more than anything else. Um, but it is probably my favourite game world set of characters. I love the music, I love the melodrama. I think it's brilliantly written, brilliantly localised anyway uh, over here. Um, but I think the actual mysteries and the characters are brilliantly written by the mighty Shutakumi, who is a big crime nut, as am I. And I think it really shows... Um, 
yeah, this was this was the first DS game I owned when I when I got the job in Endgamer. I knew exactly what I wanted to buy, so I bought DS Lite and I bought this and Castlevania. Uh, I played this and was just absolutely like instantly fell in love. And it's a series that I've kind of feel like I've sort of brought with me like through my whole kind of through my whole Nintendo career. Anyway, you know they 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 made them regularly enough that they were always there. Um, they have their ups and downs. I don't even think Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney is my favourite of the lot. I think it's probably the second best. Um, but we'll go into the other ones down the line. Don't want to spoil some future thoughts. Um, but yeah, at the core of it is this great character, Phoenix Wright, who is sort of doing battle with their prosecutor called Miles Edgeworth, who is a, another awesome character, a really great villain. Uh, with his own sort of sort of motivations, I think a lot of people focus on how funny and silly the games are, and that is true. But underneath them is a really sincere um, thriller as well. In terms of like you want to succeed because otherwise your clients are going to get the death penalty, and we are fundamentally talking about murder. So you know, there's the, the, there's, the stakes are pretty high. Um, I think weirdly, it's it's a very um, like focused. Uh, like analysis of this fictional legal system which sounds crazy but the games are about the relationships between defense attorneys and prosecutors um it's not just a simple like good versus evil thing like there's 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 a weirdly specific element to it which i really really connect with over the series because they they explore it in lots of different ways the music's absolutely banging. The animation's beautiful. Uh, this wasn't even made for DS. It was made for GBA. It came out in, in Japan on Game Boy Advance in 2001. Uh, this was the DS port, which added a, uh extra case on the end, which had some DS elements like uh, fingerprint dust and blowing into the mic and whatnot. Um, just a great... It's just a great anime series that you play. Um, I love these characters... Uh, yeah, this I for me this is just uh, the beginning of one of my my favorite favorite game series, um, and yeah, I just really love it. <laughs> yeah, well said. I mean, um, I uh, just thinking how blown away I would have been if I played this in two thousand one on a Game Boy Advance. Oh my god! Yeah, like there weren't really. I didn't feel like the visual novel was really a thing on GBA, so that must have been must have seemed pretty yeah, revolutionary. Yeah, there's, there's a bit of tradition. In terms of, like, in Japan, on Nintendo platforms, you know, way back on the NES, there were detective games, which I imagine Shutakumi was kind of sort of tapping into. Oh, it was a detective club, something like that? On yeah, NES. yeah. Also, I guess um, I can't discount the fact that, obviously, the visual novel is uh, more than maybe any other genre, quintessentially Japanese genre, so yeah. I'm sure there would have been a lot more of these games on GBA. In the, but over in... here, something like, and it probably like helped usher in that genre over here, show that there is an appetite for these weirder things. Definitely. Um, yeah. It's really great. I, the, there was a big Capcom leak recently, and, and it's rumoured that... Um, some of the unlocal, the ones that haven't been localized, are going to be brought over to the West. Uh, specifically, there's a sort of spin-off series, sort of set in sort of uh, Victorian London, kind of sort of a Phoenix Wright meets Sherlock Holmes. Um, if that does come out and come out to Switch, I'll be so excited. Um, yeah, I believe that. I, I, I'm just anecdotally, I think that the um, the re-release they did of the original three games was incredibly successful on um, the different platforms you can get right. on. You get it on almost anything now, which is honestly i've always kind of felt like the ds was the perfect venue for those it, games and it's, I, it's the one with the, the i think it's the only one which has got the right sprite art the sound you know the synth sound the little midi soundtrack is perfect coming out of that console the font 
It just, yeah, everything, everything. It's it is a it is a handhold. It's a Game Boy Advance game. It's a DS game. Fine. I think all the other subsequent versions have done like weird HD illustrations, which just don't have the same charm to me. But you know, they've still got the story smarts. Yeah, for sure. I uh, yeah, this was this was a big deal for me too. I remember this being so. Like I say, I bought this in Animal Crossing with my DS Lite, and it was just a, a real kind of revelation in terms of expanding my sort of taste in games. Mm. Um, to be honest, though, I've still never th- finished the third one. It took me a decade to finish the second one. I only finished it a couple of years ago. Um, I have actually played. I finished the first 3DS one. Actually, I played them out of order because <laughs> I had to review that one for Games TM. Right, um, and it, that was that was pretty good. That was yeah, um, solid. the second 3DS one is actually like genius. I think. Yeah, I've heard that. I remember you saying that was like a return to form. And there's yeah. um yeah, long been rumours that a new one's been made too. Right, so uh, yeah, well, yeah, that team, you know, that team should definitely be able to do more because they're they're brilliant. I even like the the Ace Attorney Professor Layton crossover. I really really rated that. Mm. Um, oh, it's a great series. The one I really, the case I really remember from the first one was the um, Steel Samurai one. Yeah, um, I just remember there there are times where uh, obviously it is very slapstick, but like you say, there is that kind of there, a murder happened here, and yeah. every now and then it does just become a bit like a kind of horror film or something. Well, like, that's yeah, that tends to come when you break people. Like yeah. everyone's very cocky and comical. And then every once in a while it gets to the heart of the matter that someone here has been killed and someone here is a murderer and they snap and they break and then they sort of become, you know, they, there's a famous moment in each case where the, you know, you're really hammering your main suspect and they eventually snap and the animation, like, they'll explode and sort of turn into like a mad demon or something. Um, and that moment is like really kind of big, kind of cathartic thing. And then it, it does somehow tread between... Very silly, light-hearted kind of buddy comedy between Phoenix Wright and his sidekick, and the fact that this person is going to get the electric chair, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is kind of, it's kind of, or whatever the you know they they're put to death is is the implication. Um, it's quite a sinister game. The third one is super sinister, and it's why well, it's one of the better ones as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, a great series. I should uh, yeah, I should um, I should really finish that third you one. You should one hundred percent. Yeah. Sam, what is your number one? I actually just have one small note to add on Phoenix Wright. Oh, okay. If I had one criticism for this first game, Ooh. they kill off Mia Faye too early. I think that she just... I feel like their dynamic was really good. Um, and like, it, yeah, yeah. It's dramatically satisfying, though. And they use, her in, they use her in some interesting ways in the other games as well. Mm. Because there's a weird kind of parent, sort of supernatural, ghosty element. It's actually one of my lesser favourite things about the series is that the supernatural is so prevalent because in a game which hinges on you know how awful it is that someone's died the idea of like people coming back with possession and stuff it's a, it sort of undermines it a little bit yeah no, no one you can't come back to life in this universe but you can kind of have a second go in weird ways yeah yeah that was uh, my only note yeah to no add, that's but, um, that's that's fair yeah um okay cool so my so, number one yeah what is it I, I actually i'm really struggling to even imagine what it is right so uh, Metal Gear Solid Three Subsistence. Oh, of course, <laughs> right. So I um, there was a period of about a year and a half where I didn't really play games. Um, I, I kind of blame Final Fantasy X two, uh, a game I was quite disillusioned by uh, when I was sixteen. Um, just wasn't for me in how kind of like 
cheesecake it was in, yeah. in, in, in retrospect I've, I've heard some really thoughtful uh, some people really love that game and i think particularly young women it really resonated with them to have this all-female party mm. of um, characters in Tentu, and you know it definitely um had innovations in terms of the battle system but i fell out of love with games and then didn't play anything for a while missed metal gear solid 3 when it first came out and um picked up this new edition of it which um added basically the um third one is set in a jungle it's set in the 60s it's a prequel i was massive on metal gear solid 2 but i was quite bummed out by the fact that this didn't continue the story of 2 which had a pretty massive cliffhanger where the ultimate villain of the game had died a hundred years before uh, <laughs> and was living on as an ai and all <laughs> of this <course>. stuff <laughs> yeah. um which is part of the reason metal gear solid 4 which we discussed before ended up being so bad um but yeah i, I don't i don't think i quite i just wasn't interested when they um, announced it and revealed it and stuff but then people were telling me no this is this is an amazing game and this has the best story of the series and um this was the point where i finally bought it and um got to enjoy this 3d camera they added which made it feel a lot more contemporary yeah um yeah the uh camera was top down in the um original and didn't quite work but this is a this is a great game um just uh yes cold war set you are playing a kind of um the character known as big boss um or who would be known as big boss the predecessor to snake uh snake is cloned from big boss we don't need to get into any of that <laughs> but the point is it's kind of quite a james bondy adventure where you jump into you land in this got a james bond thinking yes exactly you land in this um south american jungle and um yeah you are basically uh you're looking your your former boss uh your former mentor has betrayed you um, and rejoined her old unit in um, defecting, basically. And so you are trying to hunt her down. You know that you have to hunt her down. And uh, you have this kind of Heart of Darkness slash Apocalypse Now-esque uh, journey um, through confronting these different members of this cell and uh, before you, your inevitable meeting with her. And it's a really a really strong story. Um, yeah, really exciting in terms of um, in terms of stealth. They're absolutely like iconic boss fights as well. Yeah, they really are. Um, so yeah, I um, was ma- I was just massive on this um, this third entry. It just uh, the the end is the most famous boss fight. It's a sniper battle, um, which did take me about three hours to do the first time. Now hmm. I can do it in about ten minutes because I know exactly where he is and <laughs> how to track him down. And you had to use a microphone in the game to find him in the jungle. Um, <laughs> it was just yeah, just really something. And um, even though I think the jungle stuff only really constitutes the first half of the game yeah and then the second half is um is more like you're in buildings and then military bases and stuff but um i think everyone remembers the ending of this game very vividly um it's got, it's got a real gut punch of an ending in a, in a couple of different ways a great final couple of twists with some of the the, the characters you meet in the game i and, think it's uh, his like for someone who is so obsessed with film and cinema i think it's his most satisfyingly like cinematic game yeah. Like, if I was to make a film of any of his games, this would probably be the one which would work best. Yeah. You know, particularly the ending, I think. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously making a film uh, of Metal Gear uh, with Oscar Isaac as Solid Snake, it turns yeah. out. I assume that would be based on the first game, which uh, has a lot of baggage already, I think, um, mm. to make it. It's a diff- bit difficult to make a film from that. Um, potential, for sure. But, yeah, this third one is spot on, I think. It's... Do, you, do you like the ladder a bit? Yeah, I do. I, do, I think I, I like it as a kind of oddity to discover in the game. Obviously, it's got a function in terms yeah. of masking a loading screen. But um, yeah, do you not like the ladder? No, I do quite like the. I do no, I do quite like the ladder. I just feel it needs it needs asking. Um, I like the song. Um, it's a great theme tune, and I like. I actually 
I like the fan service bits in this as well. I love the young Revolver Ocelot stuff. Oh, he's great. He's um, such a fun character. Oh, he's fantastic. Meow. <laughs> uh, uh, very strong. I love that you can't kill him without it being a time paradox. Oh, that's a great touch. I mean, it has all those kind of like um, detailed uh, Kojima touches that Metal Gear Solid 2 had as well, but in a much more interesting environment with yeah. better characters. And yeah, it's all just, everything's just everything's just spot on um, i don't think i've actually played the subsistence version with the nice camera i think i've only played i think i played it like when it first came out the original version yeah the hd edition is um has got the subsistence version so yeah it does make a big difference it's quite hard to go back to the top down metal yeah. Solid two ones because that jungles just it's really hard to see anything especially yeah. on ps2 is quite quite blurry the original the hd one's really nice though and um yeah the um survival stuff was a little bit ahead of its time i think um in yeah. terms of how big that type of stuff got in terms of sustaining an injury and having to repair yourself and hunting down food and stuff that's kind of the, the whole whole survival genre is built on that type of um that type of gameplay so mm. yeah um i definitely think that the conversation gets a bit overblown around metal gear and um kojima generally in terms of the kind of cult of personality stuff going on there yeah um but um justified with this game and uh, yeah i was at my most interested in metal gear at this point um so yeah, that was my number one, Matthew. That's a, a very strong pick. It's yeah. actually a, a pretty good year, isn't it? Yeah, it was good. It was you know transitional year. We've got some next gen games. Well, you know next gen then games, but also like a, a bunch of kind of like um, uh, you know older console games too. It was just just a really good mix of those kind of mid level games with those big blockbusters. You know. Yeah, and yeah. some great stuff which I thought came out in two thousand six and did come out in two thousand six everywhere else other than the UK. Mm. We were robbed of, I'm pretty sure, Akami and Final Fantasy XII. Yeah, those were both kind of like ones I considered, and then I'll, you know, they were next year, so it was God Hand. And, um... like that's uh, that's something, well, obviously, I don't miss that, but that I, I'd forgot, I'd almost forgotten that era of seeing the reviews for something and then realising you couldn't play it for a year without importing. Yeah. And I just didn't have the money or inclination to do any of that. <laughs> yeah, I never imported a game. And um, I do, uh, there was... Um, uh, one game I had on my list until like 10 minutes before we recorded this and then I realised it had come out in um, a different year which was Elite Beat Agents um, uh, yeah see because I, I, I missed um, a Wendan and that was a game I never played um, but I did play that one so yeah that's an example of the types of games that missed the cut here because yeah. they came out later in Europe therefore I didn't play them till later Yeah, but yeah that was, that was fun to go through though um, yeah I was, I was, I'm surprised we didn't have more crossover actually yeah it's quite I think that just shows the different backgrounds that you and i have um the different kind of angles we had on uh on things and I, I i should have played twilight princess i did own it at some point but yeah just the Wii was just never the yeah I'm, I'm yeah well i'm intrigued to see what happens when we kind of uh when we hit 2007 and you start work on the magazine because you know like i say i was really out of the ps3 picture for quite a few years and i'm, I'm genuinely ignorant on some of its some of its early hits if it had them so i'm i am intrigued to see what that kind of uh what that does for your lists yeah that'd be fun to dissect for sure um yeah thank you very much for listening and uh it's been a long one but i think it was worth it to really get uh i feel like we got some good detail on all of these games 
Um, so yeah, hopefully you enjoy the nostalgia trip. Uh, we welcome your feedback. You can email us at uh, backpagegames at gmail.com. As Matthew pointed out, that sounds filthy. Um, <laughs> there's also Backpage Pod on Twitter if you want to follow us on there. Um, I'll tweet about new episodes on there whenever um, whenever they come up. Um, I'll make sure Matthew's got the details too because I'm the one doing the tweeting at the moment. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm wrecking his personal brand. Uh, no, that's the fine. <laughs> um, yes, and so I'm Samuel W. Roberts on uh, Twitter. Matthew, you can be I found I am here. Mr. Basil underscore pesto. Yes, and uh, we'll be back next Friday with another episode. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.